John Leake reached out to me in 2021 and introduced himself as an author and a writer and said, listen, I want to I want to do an interview. I want to film you without a lot of introduction. I knew a little bit about his background, but without much introduction. And it was at a time where uh, things were, in a sense, uh, popping, if you will. I had just uh, uh, gone on Tucker Carlson. I went on his long program. And so it wasn't unusual to be approached by someone. And, and little did I know we had a lot of work ahead of us. And Mr. Lake, what attracted you to uh, Dr. McCullough? You know, as an author, you've been all over the place. You write a book and it's a bestseller. <laughs> it's first book. <laughs> um, what attracted you so much to Dr. McCullough? Well, when, when COVID arrived, I, I knew, and we can talk about it, I knew that our federal agencies weren't telling us the truth, um, that it was being distorted and even fraudulently misrepresented. But I knew that I needed a top medical scientific witness to go over all of this. Um, and the question was, where do I find him? I mean, because he has to have a number of credentials. He, he has to be a top academic guy who can read, read and preferably publish peer-reviewed literature. He, ideally, would, he would have um, clinical experience actually treating patients. And on top of it all, he himself would also have to be questioning this orthodoxy. So it's a number of qualifications I was looking for. Where am I going to find this guy? Come to find out he lives two miles away from my home in Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw a cease. Well, the first thing I saw, a friend's, friend of mine sends a YouTube video, and it says, check this guy out. I click on the link. It's Dr. McCullough wearing a jogging suit at a local park in Dallas. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Dr. McCullough didn't tell you about how, how ripped he is under that suit. <laughs> he actually Oh, is, you don't understand. He, no, he is ripped. He, he yeah. is the only guy on the planet that can wear, if you're going to go scuba diving, a scuba, he, he hates one, <laughs> a scuba diving shirt, a belt buckle, dress pants up to here, and Gucci loafers or some type of loafers, and look damn good. Well, he, well he, he's a marathon runner. Well, I, I can tell you, in the last three years, if I went scuba diving, I'd wear a sport coat and tie. <laughs> I bet you would. And the reason being, the reason being is because the immediate claim, if I did anything other than that, would be, he's not credible. <laughs> You're right. You're right. Or, or it's a, it, or it's a, a double. You're, there are purportedly several imposters. Oh, oh, yeah. There's clones everywhere, too. So I'm sorry to interrupt. There's about a dozen on Telegram, by the way. There's about a dozen Dr. Peter McCullough. And they're different versions of it. So it says, Dr. Peter McCullough, buy your ivermectin here. And then you, you look at the, the origin of the account, and it says, you know, Lagos, Nigeria, or something like this. And so, uh, so what happens on these social media platforms that don't certify or vet what's going on is there are innumerable doubles and triples, and some are uh, attempting to just capitalize on sell something, some type of scam. So, of course, I receive a steady flow of, you, you said you were going to ship me ivermectin. It's like, listen, I'm not selling this <laughs> stuff out of my, out of my basement. You, you know, I'm a doctor. <clears throat> um, and then 
The other ones who actually make these fake accounts, it turns out that they're sympathizers. They're people that they're, they're just uh, what I call freedom people. They're, they're just trying to amplify the message. So they just take all the content. They, take, they just pretend they're me and they just amplify things, you know, even more. Mr. Leak, when I was trying to share the last post with Dr. McCauley, even though I already knew, when I went to the thing on Instagram, as you were saying, it was kind of tough to get a hold of them. They all looked the same. And I would have to go through to see which one had the most followers so I knew it was him. And then, as you said, half are for him. You know, they're just trying to push it in case you got banned. And the other half, you know, Dr. Peter McCullough, Ivermectin, this, that. And then uh, with the link, the link is a, you know, bit.ly link where you can't see what it is. And it takes you to an India pharmacy to get Ivermectin, I swear to God. <laughs> so I understand your uh, trouble in possibly trying to find the top uh, cardiologist in the well, world. Well, to, just to just to clarify, I mean, I I I knew that as a true crime author, if you're writing about medical matters, you, you have to have basically the equivalent of an expert witness. Because I mean, when I when I research and write true crime, my thinking is, you know, if I'm in court and I make an assertion, like, could I? Could I actually have an expert witness to back me on this? So that's what I was looking for. Um, the question is, where on earth are you going to find a guy who has all of the, the credentials? But in this weird world in which we found ourselves in 2020, where most ranking doctors of, of Dr. McCullough's caliber were just absolutely following this strict, orthodox um, prescription. I mean, they would get the directive from the hospital administration, from, from the lawyers, saying this is our official policy. And I would say more than 90% just said, okay. I mean, that's exactly what we'll tell our patients. That's, and, you know, far be it from me to question any of this. So I needed to find someone of Dr. McCullough's ca uh, caliber who, would, who is also questioning. And that's one of the things that, that we discovered is he would actually put his whole academic career, his position, his social status, his income, he put it all completely on the line. All on the line. Yeah. Which, so I thought that was cool. I did think you were excessively trusting, though. I mean, I, I remember telling um, the studio manager of the studio, the director, I, I said, he doesn't know who I am. I mean, for all we know, he's going to pull around the corner and we're going to toss him into the trunk of a Plymouth Grand Victoria or whatever and take him out to a cornfield and that's the end. Um, so you were rather trusting, but you're still with us. So long, long may you remain with us. People have asked me, why do you trust so readily? And I've had all kinds of experiences where people have reached out to me over the last three years, all over the world. And I honestly just let instincts and my faith uh, guide. And I'll never forget when, where my wife was out of town, her, um, her parents were up in Canada and they were, father, her father was getting sick and she had to be out of town for a, prolonged, to yeah, a prolonged period of time. And um, uh, a, a woman contacts me from Fort Worth by texting. She texts me and she goes, Dr. McCullough, my name is Tracy. And I was wondering if you would come over to my house to pray. And I thought about it. And then 
I talked to my wife who was out of town. I said, what should I do? And she said, well, what do you think? What's your, what's your gut feeling? I said, my gut feeling is uh, I, I should go. And then uh, a few days later, I, I, so I uh, agreed. A few days later, and she goes, you know, there's going to be about 10 people. I said, okay. Then a few days later, <clears throat> while we're negotiating a date to come over, she goes, I'm going to try to have as many people in my house as I can fit in my house. <laughs> then a few days after that, she goes, we've rented a venue. <laughs> and, and by that time, you know, I told John, I said, you know, something's really going on in Fort Worth. <laughs> and, uh, and things got sufficiently delayed. My wife was going to come in from out of town. So John said, well, why don't I go pick you up? We'll pick up, uh, uh, you know, Maha at the airport and we'll go to Fort Worth. So we go to Fort Worth. And as uh, John will tell you, Oh my gosh! This is a. They had a. They had a. a you know, food and drinks Buffet. and, a, and oh, all yeah, you can eat. There's all these, all these <laughs> incredibly well-married, attractive people who were disturbed about what was going on, and and I end up giving a, a type of uh, like a TED talk basically during dinner. Then afterwards, this prayer happened, which was amazing. And it became a giant scrum where a hundred or more people were just around me. I could just feel the mass, and everyone's trying to put their hands on my shoulders. Well, it's like the aura. You can almost feel the aura-ish. It, it, it was it was really intense. Yeah, it, it reminded me of, um, uh, I have an ancestor in Dallas. He was one of the first settlers of, of Dallas, and he was a, a Methodist, they called it, a Methodist circuit minister. He'd literally, he'd literally ride around the countryside with the Bible and the American South, preaching the Word of God, and um, apparently he was very charismatic. And the thing that I remember about this guy, he was in the Confederate Army during the Civil War, Ooh. and he, and there, there were apparently witnesses that claimed this, of all the soldiers in the Confederacy, and I think he's my great-great-grandfather, his name was Mr. Edwards, he apparently got the closest to Washington. I mean, it was an expeditionary thing to go to, to mm -hmm. the Battle of Gettysburg. It was, it was when General Lee made this move against Washington. So anyway, I have this um, perhaps notorious ancestor, but I remember reading his diary, and I remember thinking, you're kind of like a, a sort of a circuit minister. I mean, and he does. He has gone around the country talking with people about what is going on, not only in the world of medicine, but how medicine intersects with the integrity of the U.S. Constitution. I mean, because if you think about it, if our state agencies say, we're declaring an emergency, and everyone and within the state of this emergency, we're, we're suspending normal procedures of law. And if you don't do exactly as we tell you in, in response to this pandemic, then we can lock you up. We can prevent you from going to work. We can prevent you from your children from going to school. And so I, I began to perceive around the time that we went to Fort Worth that, that Dr. McCullough, what he's done is he's brought his medical scientific understanding to bear on what, in fact, is this great public affairs, legal, constitutional issue that touches every aspect of American life. Well, of, of the life of every country now. I mean, 
and I see it in your books and a lot of your writings, how important to both of you as an author and as a doctor is instinct to follow? Because I've noticed now people don't follow their instinct anymore. And if you go back in history, I mean, you have a master's degree from Boston College. Do you know that, Rob? No. Boston University. Well, I'm sorry, Boston University. This episode is brought to you by Let's Get Checked. Are you the man your father was? Recent studies have shown that men's testosterone levels have dropped substantially since the 1980s at about an average of 1% per year. Think about how old your father was when he was born. For example, if he was 30, your testosterone levels could be 30% lower than his. Low testosterone levels can have all type of health effects on men. It can affect your mood, sex drive, memory, muscle mass loss, you name it. And yes, low testosterone is more common the older you get, but it can affect men at any age. So let's talk about today's sponsor, Let's Get Checked. You can order a testing kit that will be delivered to you in a discreet packaging with next day delivery. Once your sample arrives in the laboratory, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. So if you want to test your hormone levels without having to leave your home, Visit trylgc.com backslash mscsmedia and get 25% off your test using the code mscsmedia. The link is in the description at the top. This episode is brought to you by Fiji. More than just water. This is not just rock. It's ancient volcanic rock that filters tropical rain, giving it double the electrolytes and its signature soft, smooth taste. It's not just water. It's Fiji water. Obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. Most people know about it. Do you know one of the most common OCD behaviors mm. is? And you're kind of nodding off. Uh, no, I'm looking. Uh, now he's because I, I rob because he'll play with these curtains for ten, 20 minutes if he has uh, to. And I still <laughs> see one curtain. I'm like, oh, I didn't fix this little part. No, it's well, killing me over here. No, well, listen. There's a difference between someone being, uh, you know, having compunction. There's a difference between that and OCD. One of the most common pathological OCD behaviors, you know what it is? Hand washing. Mm. And so OCD goes along with germophobia, excessive hand washing, and there'll be, uh, you know, there'll be a, a child, uh, there's one in our circles, uh, you know, years ago, where she was in her teenage years and she was diagnosed with OCD. And we, we and, you know, we'd be at some gathering and say, well, where is she? Well, her mother would go, she's in the bathroom. And I said, well, what, she's, what has she been doing for the last half hour? She's been washing her hands. So you can imagine, I guess the reason why I'm saying this is you can imagine that in this crisis, there was this entire spectrum. And as a doctor, what I had to do is I had to sort out how much of all this is hysteria, how much of this is real symptomatic disease, and do I need to do something or do I need to provide uh, assurance? So yesterday in the office, I saw now for the second time a patient who is about 35 years old, and she's recovering from her first bout of COVID, which uh, I think she's on about week three. So three weeks ago, I think it was moderately severe. Now, but, but let me tell you what, she had the oxygen pulsimeter, she was checking this and that, checking her blood pressure. And you know, to be fair, when I saw her last week on week two, her lung exam was abnormal and her heart rate was up and she looked ill to me. She looked pale and she's lost weight. I mean, those were all objective signs that she had the real illness. 
And, uh, and then I saw her yesterday, and of course, a week has gone by, and she is better. And I told her, listen, you're better. And I know we're on the back end. I mean, we're three weeks into this. I've managed hundreds upon hundreds of COVID patients. I know she's not going to end up on the ventilator. I know it's not going to happen. And it's rare now with the Omicron subvariants that someone would ever be hospitalized or end up on the ventilator, but some do. But she's not one of them. So at yesterday's visit, my main goal was reassurance and anxiety re, uh, reduction. And, you know, we're tailing off the medicine. She's gone through the McCullough protocol, the sequence multidrug treatment for this illness, and she's through it. And we're on the back end. But even on the way here, she texted me with another question. Mm-hmm. But my, if I didn't put all that care and effort in from day one, from the day she got sick, I promise you she would have been to the ER. I promise you in the ER she would have tested positive. And then after that, she wouldn't would have been down this spiral. It is a spiraling sequence of events upon which people end up in hospital, end up in isolation. They are already germophobic, anxiety-prone mm-hmm. people who go into sheer panic in a reverse uh, ventilation isolation room where people coming in with full hazmat suits and pappers now some places can't see a relative. Can you imagine what that must feel like? I would feel like, you know, if I didn't know, I would feel like I was going to die and whatever I need to take, do whatever. Yeah, give it to me. Do you, do you, you know, do you feel that there's just way I would more be people average. nowadays, like way more people that I hear the word all the time thrown around, sometimes just like, all right, but anxiety. That's a huge word that's used now. Anxiety. I have anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. But do you think it, it is a lot more people now that do have anxiety because of social media, because of what you're being trained to watch that you're like, fuck, well, I guess the world is ending. Oh, my God. Like, do, do you feel that? Yeah, I I've sometimes I mean, this is something that you, you hear guys talk about that um, part of the problem that, that seems to occur in a society that has extremely high levels of, of material security and comfort is that if you're not having to contend with things that you you do need to overcome like you you know if you think of humans in a paleolithic you have to like go out and slay wild beasts or contend with the neighboring tribe or whatever if you're just always in a very highly materially secure situation where where you're, you're never exercising the business of confronting things. It's just kind of you and your laptop. It does seem like it it actually tends to promote a, a free-floating anxiety. And it's probably rooted in an underlying awareness that we humans all have that of mortality, that, that life is relatively short. You know, you're going to get sick. You're going to die. I mean, these these thoughts are at the back of consciousness all the time. But if you're busy and you have work to do and a, and a sense of purpose and a, and, a, and a sense of, you know, I need to accomplish this, then in the act of focusing on something, a, a purposeful action, then, then these free-floating anxieties, it seems to me, you know, tend to recede into the background. But I get the feeling there's just... So so many people in our society, they're they're materially provided for. They're not going to starve, but they don't they don't know what to do with themselves. And if you don't know what to do with yourself, then I think you are more prone to just general free floating anxiety. 
So correct me if I'm wrong. So what you're saying in so many words in history, there wasn't everything wasn't given. There wasn't this laptop or iPad. There wasn't this. There wasn't that. There wasn't a grocery store where if I have twenty dollars, I can get a steak. I might have to actually go out and kill something. <laughs> I have to be confronted with a situation I don't want to be. But now everything's given. Here you go. Here you go. But, you know, 100 years ago, it wasn't like that. You had to work, be confronted, deal with things, so on and so forth. So now this COVID comes and nobody's used to dealing with anything anymore. So now it's, oh, it's the end. Well, free-floating anxiety about your mortality, but with nothing to attach it to. Now you've got something to now attach it to. Now you have something to. to attach it to. Yeah, now it's yeah. okay. Now I know what could kill me. I think a big part to this anxiety epidemic you know, that has overlaid the COVID-19 epidemic has been a lack of physical activity. I, 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 I can tell you as a doctor, the antidote to anxiety disorder is exercise. And a massive amount of exercise can alleviate almost any degree of anxiety. Mm -hmm. In fact, have you ever seen these interviews of these athletes? Have you ever seen the type of questions these guys are almost buzzed with so much uh, yeah. uh, uh, just, you know, endorphins. Have you ever seen them yeah. come up and say, and do any of these pro players who ever get interviewed, do they ever look anxious? No. Never. No. They're like, uh, we just need to execute. <laughs> They're almost in a coma. When they answer the questions, especially the pro football players, I'd say NBA players, mm -hmm. it's almost as if they're in a coma. They're so buzzed. And there is a sense of, uh, I used to run a lot of marathons. And when I would finish a marathon, I would feel so buzzed that I would say, you know, I don't care about anything right now. I really don't. I do not care about <laughs> anything the feeling of, and it has to feel that way after playing an NFL playoff game or a basketball game. And, you, you know, it's just the, the this sense of just being completely buzzed. Most of the athletes that are interviewed, to me, looking on their face, I don't see a bit of anxiety. None. And, and, and um, this, this extremely purposeful, um, you know, endorphin, adrenaline, all, all of the stuff that goes along with high-level athletic performance, it's also an analgesic. Like, these guys don't feel as much pain. Um, so there's a famous fight between Tommy Hearns and, um, and uh, Hagler. Hagler, yeah. And Her Hearns breaks his right hand. But he keeps fighting. He starts leading. You, you start to notice, wow, he's leading with his left a lot. Like, where's his right? But he keeps fighting. Remember Kobe Bryant? He played the entire playoffs bone against bone. Right. In uh, 99 or 2001. Knee against knee. Bone against bone. And won the championship. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure it didn't feel too good about a week after he won, but... <laughs> so so we're constantly doing battle with laptop warriors, um, you know, people that are sitting in a, in a, in a room, in a climate-controlled room. Yes, if they flip on the lights, you know, and there will be light, you know, food is delivered by Uber Eats. I mean, like, you don't ever have to actually do anything ac actively to achieve material security. So I kind of feel like... You know, a lot of these laptop warriors, they're just constantly <laughs> like I open I, laptop warrior. I, 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 you know, I, I, I open my my uh, my my um, 
uh, email for our, our book website. And it's just someone just really sat down on the website, went to the form submission and wrote, rot in hell, you terrible narcissist. And you, you just think, what kind of a life? Like, like are you that bored? You have, I, like, you have so much time. That's, that's has, what it is. But think about the vitriol of doing this, right? So this is a book. It's a book. It's I been know. carefully written. <laughs> it's telling a story. And the vitriol. So if we met this person in the airport on the way home, would this person have the gumption to come up to us, look us in the eyes, and tell us to rot in hell? Hell no, and he'd never be in the airport because he's sitting on his couch drinking Go. his Budweiser Go. and his blue and yellow nut huggers and has nothing else to do Doritos. but break balls while you guys are out trying to change the world, and I'm sitting trying to keep friends with you guys. <laughs> but let me say one thing about going out uh, to give a public program, and I've given now many dozens, probably, maybe uh, probably over 100 public programs. What I sense the most when people take out a day where they'll say, well, I want to listen to Dr. McCullough and some other doctors, or sometimes there's nurses or, or lawyers who give a lecture on civil liberties, what have you. And these, these, sometimes these are in you know, nice hotel rooms or ballrooms. They can be in outside venues, sometimes in people's homes. Most people come because they want to they want some reassurance that their understanding of reality is reaffirmed by someone else particularly someone with medical authority and the second thing they really want you know what americans want they want their questions answered and so if we if, if we if i said we're just going to have questions and answers people would be so helpful think about this we've had three years of this pandemic the federal agencies have had no public question and answer sessions. We've had uh, the, the medical schools and health systems, no open forums, public health departments, nothing. No one's actually had a chance to have their, and they have a million questions from how does it spread? What happened to my loved one where this happened? What, what about this hand sanitizer versus this one, this mask versus... Think about the number of questions when a viral illness overtakes an entire country and that all the agencies will say, no, you're going to look at a big stone wall. It's called stonewalling. And that has just amplified the anxiety. Yeah, and uh, Mr. Leake, actually, I, and uh, Dr. McCall... There's a part in this book that's kind of similar, but just different characters. Uh, Darren Hamlin, the NFL player that took the hit, to this is for both of you. Isn't it odd that I have not heard one person say, hey, did he get the shot? Did he get the vaccine? I haven't heard anybody ask that. All I've heard was he got hit, he's getting better, you know, he got hit right in the chest, but I haven't heard anybody investigating that. It, in in this orthodoxy in which we to me now that's live. like a crime, yeah. <laughs> well, in this in this orthodox mentality in which we now live, it's permissible to ask someone's vaccine status if they want to enter a restaurant and order a cup of coffee. But if it's a twenty four year old boy in the NFL <laughs> who collapses on the field, you can't ask under those circumstances. So, but there is one thing that I, I wanted to say because it was a great question. Sure. You said instinct. 
instinct is very important, but instinct is something that develops with education. So I, you know, I call it an interpretive framework, and that's one advantage of studying history, because history, you know, repeats it itself, right? Well, I I would say it rhymes. It rhymes. follows certain certain patterns, and you start to recognize these patterns occurring again and again and again. And what the, the history of I'll I'll just focus on what I know on on Western Europe. There's always this tension, at all times, between an ambitious man or group of men. Usually, they're associated or gain control of the military of the army, who have this idea: um, we know best what's f for mankind, and laws and parliaments and debates and lawyers and all this kind of stuff, it just slows down the, the process of me telling everyone what to do because I know best. I mean, this is a very, it probably just goes back into our early years. If there's a great chieftain who kind of know, maybe he is unusually capable. Um, but as the, as the social unit expands beyond a, a tribe of 200 people and becomes a nation of millions of people, what our founding fathers recognized is, now wait a minute, like one ambitious guy or a group of ambitious guys, they're not as smart as they think they are. Um, there's a, an underlying tendency to arrogance. So we, we need a constitution, a, a body of fundamental laws that it's not only pe people forget the citizenry needs to be governed, but the governors need to be governed yeah. too. And that's the purpose of the Constitution. So I'm, I'm aware of this from studying history. So whenever I see moments where they say, it's an emergency, but thank goodness, Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci and their friends, they know what's best for all of us. Oh, yeah. They know what's best for all of us. So we just have to listen to them. And if anyone questions them, then those who question will be censured, censored, fired, stripped of their academic credentials. And we see this again and again in, in, in history. It's, it's happened hundreds of times. When you went over to Austria mm -hmm. for what, over a decade, right? Mm -hmm. What made you decide to go there? What was there an instinct that, that told you to go there, <clears throat> something, some reason that made you stay there that long. And when you were there and then came back to like Dallas, was there a major culture change for you because you're there and then you're coming back to the States? Um, I got a graduate school fellowship at an academic institute in Vienna. So that's why I went. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew about Vienna. I knew about it was the city of music, of Mozart, and uh, there were some cultural kind of touchstones that I was familiar with with, with Vienna. And I traveled there before when I was um, younger, I mean, like a high school kid. Um, but it was really uh, this graduate school fellowship that brought me there. And I just immediately loved the town. I mean, um, Vienna, um, interestingly enough, it's it's really was a little, almost a little bit too far east for these um, bombers in the Second World War. They're kind of running out of fuel. By, by the time they were approaching Vienna, 
it was touch and go as to, as to whether we, we could actually make it, deliver the payload, and then make it back, particularly if we have to buck a headwind. So it wasn't bombed nearly as badly as a lot of cities in Germany were. So a lot of this, I mean, it was hit. I mean, don't get me wrong. There, there, was, there was quite a bit of bomb damage, but it wasn't just blasted to smithereens. So it has this wonderfully intact city center. And a lot of the, the, the roads in the city center have been blocked off to, to car traffic. So it's just pedestrian zones, coffee houses everywhere. They're very, very social people. I mean, I could get, I'd have three invitations a night to dinner really? parties. They are social? Yeah, the most social. Wow. I mean, okay, so you, you're you Italian ancestor. Yeah. I mean, it, it's true when you go to the Mediterranean um, in Italy or, or Spain or, or Greece. I was always amazed at how older people, and I think that's what keeps them in the game. Like, you, you see older people in, in Rome hanging out at the coffee bar, and they're constantly talking. They're constantly socializing. Constantly. Yeah. yeah. So, so okay. I mean, that's a good point. But, but no, Vienna, I, 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 was, I had the good fortune to make some very interesting social and intellectual contacts. So I was very made very welcome there. And um, so I really loved the place. And, and when I moved back to the States, particularly in a more suburban setting, what I realized is, I, I think, and this this goes to our story, I think we're a very lonely people, um, we Americans. I, I, I think we we have this feeling of, I, I want to have my house in the suburbs with my own yard, my, my own garden, um, which is beautiful. I'm, I'm, I'm not knocking it. But I, I don't feel like we have sufficient social contact. You, you need it. You, in order to form a, a perspective on reality, you, you need to be kind of constantly meeting, talking, comparing notes with people. Um, so I remember I wound up in Silicon Valley um, oh, near, near Stanford University, and, uh, and it was beautiful. There were redwoods, beautiful weather. But I remember my wife got a, my ex-wife got a job at Stanford, and I remember thinking, um, apart from some of the activities on the Stanford campus per se, um, it, it, start, it struck me as a, a lonely place. The American suburbs struck me as a lonely place, um, as distinct from an old European city where people just are naturally inclined to come together and, and to congregate and to talk. That kind of goes into a discussion that Dr. McCullough and I had in our first, in our first talk. The question is, why... Why are so many doctors not questioning things? And and one of the things he pointed out is well, partly it's because they're not meeting anymore. Yeah, that you know our doctors uh, spend an inordinate amount of time meeting and talking. And anybody who's been in the hospital, academic hospital, knows that doctors are in groups and they go on rounds. And if you have cancer, there's a multidisciplinary you know cancer team. And we go to incredible numbers of meetings. The average doctor is traveling half the time because we're meeting and we're talking. It's just part of our profession. In fact, most doctors would say that the majority of their social contacts and friends are other doctors. Uh, many doctors marry nurses because they spend so much time in the hospital and they're part of the team. And I agree with that. What's happened in America is that uh, you know we're a land of immigrants, as is Canada, and the immigrants come, and I think for a generation or two, they're tight. Uh, 
They're very, very tight. Uh, I'll never forget one time I uh, was working at a hospital in Michigan, and I met this uh, Puerto Rican doctor. And he was saying, you know, I'm so lonely. Me and my wife are lonely here. And we'd, we'd talk periodically. I said, gosh, it sounds terrible. And he says, you know, we're having a, a, a birthday party. I was wondering if you'd uh, come over to our house, you and your wife. And, uh, you know, the Hispanics really take birthdays seriously. I mean, Very you know this, yeah, right? I mean, yeah. birthdays are a big deal. In Texas, we have many Mexican-Americans. And I've learned one thing. Boy, birthdays <laughs> are big. So I said, okay, we came and, you know, we, we, we got a bottle of wine and what have you. And we went over. Oh, my God. This guy had 200 people in his yeah. backyard. He had a band. There were people, you know, doing all this mariachi music and all this fun and celebration and balloons and gala. I told my wife, I said, I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm a, you know, I'm in, I'm wearing the Irish American, but I think we're in the fourth generation now, and I, I don't know 200 people I could invite over to my house. What's happened to Americans is the majority of Americans, three or four generations into it, and John's family is similar to mine. Every single sibling, almost to a one, lives in a different city. We just scatter. There is absolutely no commitment to staying around your family members. Everybody just scatters, 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 scatters. Sometimes the scattering is ridiculous. So, John, where are your siblings? Well, I, I do have two of my siblings do now live in, in, in Dallas. Um, one of my brothers lives in Hawaii. Um, but, I mean, I lived abroad for a long time. You, and then, of course, you see the fragmentation of the family with divorce and daughters-in-law don't get along with the mother. And um, so, you know, it, there's this fragmentation. And, and I think, I mean, that's a whole podcast unto, unto itself. But as it pertains to our, our theme, I... I we were talking earlier about anxiety. I, f I feel like loneliness is 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 a big is a big th a feeling of being uh, alone, right? Be well, Nobody wants to be alone. Well, I mean, that's a scary feeling. Well, well, and then and then remember we saw during COVID um, a fear of contact. Um, I mean, now I'm really free associating. No, 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 it makes a lot of sense because you go from you don't want to be alone, you know, you want to have somebody to enjoy things with, to now the new lifestyle is you stay in this room way down here and I'll stay here and we'll just text because we want to keep distancing. Plus, I think it's, you know, we just got off the plane here, Florida, and we saw legions of senior citizens with their walkers and their wheelchairs and their various sundries and their bags. How many people in America retire in Florida, but their kids are elsewhere? Their kids are still back up in Pennsylvania or New York or in Michigan. The kids are working. We seem to have no compunction about fragmenting the family. And I'll never forget, my wife is um, a Palestinian. And, uh, you know, the Palestinian peoples probably for all, for many, many reasons are tight. I mean, they are just tight. They stick together like you cannot Hello. imagine, right? They're tight. And um, I'll never forget, I was at a, a social event, and we were just uh, talking. And it was a young person, and he was finishing college, and I was asking him, and uh, uh, he's uh, also a Palestinian. And I said, well, you know, he got a computer degree. And I said, well, you know, are you going to go to Silicon Valley or work out there? He goes, oh, no, my parents are right here. 
It, it didn't even come into his mind that he would ever leave a proximate vicinity to his parents. And I know a lot of, um, you know, recently immigrated Italians are the same way. Okay. And I know, listen, when my family came over from Ireland, it turns out my grandmother and my grandfather, their families lived right next door to each other. I mean, they were, I mean, they just, it was tight. And I think all the immigrant families, like the uh, the Puerto Rican I mentioned and others, this initial tightness is really tight. I think for a couple of reasons. One, many immigrants come to the United States have a secret weapon. They speak a different language. So the language brings, right them, there. brings them right yeah. together right there. You, if you're in front of anybody, you can just slip into your own language. You can, you can talk right in front of people. No one knows what you're saying. The other thing is you have food. You have your own food. And so you have immediately, you have, oh, let's have this, let's have that. There's an immediate discussion on the next meal. So you have all these bonds. And after two, three, four generations in the United States, you don't have any special food anymore. You don't have a unique language anymore. Uh, there's been intermarriage. And people just are off to the next opportunity. And this has been going on for hundreds of years in our country. As, you know, as people got on the wagons and they went west and they conquered the west. So we've had a spirit of individualism, individualism, which defined us, defined us, and defined other people like the Australians and the Canadians uh, and so many others. And now in the last three years, we have had a heavy dose and a massive shift towards collectivism. Yeah. I, uh, I, just one quick question for both of you, uh, Mr. Lake. And <clears throat> doesn't that create then insecurity because you're used to being secure where I can go get a loaf of bread down the street? You know, when we were kids, if you needed a loaf of bread, you know, your neighbor didn't lock your, the door in Dallas, did they? You could just go knock sure. on the door and ask for bread. Sure. So you had that security. So as that starts to go away, like Dr. McCauley, you were saying, now you don't have that security. Now you're moving away and you're alone. And then that brings up the anxiety that then brings up the insecurity that then brings up the panic and then you have a mess and and then and then human contact and communication then move, moves away from direct one-on-one -on -one to electronic representations of the world so so now you're out of the habit or maybe this habit ended a long time ago. Would I be right to say, it, by leaving your family like that, then we could pertain that to how doctors don't talk anymore, how yeah. authors don't get together and talk and say, hey, uh, you know, I'm stuck on, even though you're my challenger, I'm stuck on this one page, could you help me out? And that same guy calls you, even though you're competitors, and, oh yeah, sure, yeah, why don't you try this on this page? But there's no communication anymore. I'm just wondering if history and you know just is there a basis to that of what i'm saying well again trying to keep the conversation focused on this subject that we've written about i mean the thing that i noticed was the the degree to which people's entire perception of reality is based on what they're seeing on television and what they're seeing on the internet um i mean which is an inevitable outcome of living in in you know in, in a world that we, there's billions of us and it's extremely complex and so it's only natural you would you would go to this readily available and and th th that's the other thing about it we talk about this a lot that 
even though there's this super abundance of, of primary source information, I mean, there's almost no document. I mean, sometimes you have to do a freedom of, well, oftentimes you have to do a Freedom of Information Act request, but there's so much information out there that is primary source. It's out there. It's not being concealed. It's just not being reported by these preferred, call it mainstream media sources. So lonely guy in the suburbs, his whole perception of the world is what he is being presented with on his preferred media. Um, so it just kind of seems like we had this perfect storm with with COVID-19, all of these different psychological and social phenomena that, that we're talking about. And then when both you write this book and it comes out and everything's there and people are saying, no, no, that's not true. And then it comes to find out and they're actually even saying it on the media now that 80% of the deaths that they may have marked as heart attack, I think it's like 40% heart attack, 20% liver, 10% lung, whatever maybe Dr. McCullough, you would know that exact thing. <laughs> but they've come out and they said that they believe that 80% of those code ins were COVID shot killings or dying from COVID, one or the other. It's true. Our CDC number, the CDC on this, I think, has been forthright. So of, of the COVID deaths, uh, 10%, if adjudicated, we actually, you know, doctors sat down and reviewed the case, 10% would be primary COVID pneumonia. They died a death of respiratory failure or close complication. And that 90%, there was other, these other contributors and many people who died with COVID were actually towards the end of their life anyway. It could be somebody who, you know, had leukemia, lymphoma, cancer, end-stage heart failure. Um, and and so the Italians have said that actually it's 3% primary COVID. Now, uh, people have said, well, is this fair? Is it fair to say that we lost a million Americans with COVID? I tend to uh, stay on the side of yes. Call it, if you call it a COVID death, call it a COVID death, because even if someone had a terminal illness, they were robbed of the last few days of their life. They were robbed of their last Christmas. They were robbed of saying goodbye to their family members. Many of them were in isolation in the hospital. They couldn't even get their affairs in order. Remember, death in the United States is extremely well known. The vast majority of deaths that happen in the United States happen with antecedent illnesses, and we see it coming a mile away. 40% of the deaths are heart disease, most of it heart failure or stroke with sequelae leading. Very few of the cardiovascular deaths nowadays uh, before the pandemic were these surprise heart attacks. Remember a few years ago, the CEO of McDonald's uh, keeled over in the boardroom and, you oh, know, yeah. and then what happened is hmm. there was such an awareness of coronary heart disease. There was such an awareness of uh, diet and lowering cholesterol and controlling blood pressure and all of these things. And then on top of that, we had uh, defibrillators put in at public sporting events and we had uh, advanced paramedics and coronary care units. The number of uh, of cardiac arrests that would lead with this. In fact, there's an important paper was published years ago. It said, in the United States, again, this is before the pandemic, someone who died of a cardiac arrest actually sought help from a doctor a month earlier, hmm. on average. So there was something going on. So uh, it's true. Today, in my practice, if someone had cardiac arrest, I'd be like, well, geez, you know, I 
we knew the configuration, we knew this and that. Hopefully, I'd have a defibrillator or a pacemaker in the patient. You know, I, it, it's you know, this happened in the last ten years of my practice. Uh, I think I've had one or two patients have a cardiac arrest, and one had it in the setting of a heart attack, and it was in the cath lab, and he was resuscitated. In fact, I saw him recently. But we didn't have legions and legions and legions of people just having sudden death. So death is 40% heart disease, largely heart failure, and known atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. If there was a young person who died, it would be due to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is that abnormal thickness of the heart, which is now screened for in all the athletes. We do echocardiograms, EKGs. The doctors examine it. We actually don't. Uh, before the pandemic, we just didn't see people... Uh, dying on the playing over. field. Now, before the pandemic, then the second 40% is cancer that we know it and we see it coming a mile away and people progress and they go into hospice. And then 20% is other causes, can be suicide, drug overdoses. So that was before the pandemic. What happened was is that the overall numbers of deaths in the United States increased slightly, but this proportion of COVID deaths now became a dominant proportion, and it kind of overlaid with uh, heart disease and cancer, and things just kind of, the pie just reapportioned. Now we're into the last two years now of not only having the viral illness, but the mass vaccination program. In the mass vaccination program, our CDC says that 87% of Americans have taken at least one shot. And our CDC says that at least two-thirds of Americans at one point in time, we're fully immunized, meaning they've taken two shots. They actually went through the full series. However, currently, our CDC says only 13% are up to date because you can imagine if, let's take a doctor. If a doctor uh, was part of this immunization program, it started in December of 2020. So it'd be shot one in December of 2020, shot two in January of 2021. And by this time now, that's two shots, three shots, four shots, five shots, that person is actually on six, shot number six, shot number six. So that those are a lot of injections. So we are in an era now uh, to take CDC at face value. 87% have been exposed to an experimental vaccine. Uh, Two-thirds have been fully immunized. There are two survey, uh, Rasmussen Report survey and then the uh, Zogby survey, which are representative population-based surveys, when they ask people, have you taken the vaccine, the number's two-thirds. So if we've gone with two-thirds of the population taking the vaccine, it's a brand new exposure. If we're seeing anything different with death now, it's of public health importance. In your opinion, and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, do you think, uh, Darren, the football player, do you think that was from the shot? Well, Americans know what happened. Now, it turns out I'm a big Bills fan. Remember, I grew up there. I know. That's why I keep asking you. My dad took me and my brothers to Rich Stadium the very first game. Wow. The very first game. You got a Bills and Cowboys. uh, Oh, boy. But, but, you know, the the, the Bills game, So it's been renamed, but uh, my kindred in western New York will remember this. The very first Bills game. And I remember it. It was preseason, and we were playing the Washington Redskins. And so when you went in the stadium, they gave a little commemorative coin because it was going to be the very first. And, and so we went in, and, and uh, I remember, like, for our lot of tickets, we got one coin. And my dad 
decided I guess I was a good boy that day. He, he, he gave me the coin. So I was a little kid, but I had this Buffalo Bills coin, and it was the commemorative uh, thing. So we sat down, and, and we you know went through all the pregame hype, and we're just, you know, I was a little boy, and we we're just so ready. And that kickoff happens, and the Bills kick it off to the Redskins. This preseason. But the Redskins run it all the way back for a touchdown. And I was like, oh, this isn't going to be what it's going to be. And you remember those days where we were terrible and the Buffalo Bills were terrible. And it was season after season, season after, after season. season. How many seasons do you guys and, have and, where you were and then, two and well, 12? Well, remember the history of the Bills. Before the merger, they actually won the AFL a, oh, long, yeah. you know, a yeah. long, long time ago. Then it was the NFL, and the Bills were terrible. Then we went through this era, which was very interesting, which was the O.J. Simpson era. Oh, yeah. Where Do you remember the days in pro football when a running back would be handed the ball, and on every play, it could go all the way? Yeah. Like every play, they'd hand the ball to O.J. Simpson, and you say, for, and for half a second, you would say, oh, my gosh, th- this could go all the way. And that was the magic of the juice. So we had those uh, those days, and then, you know, those went down. And again, we were terrible. Then we went into the Jim Kelly era, yep. and in the Jim Kelly era with Thurman Thomas and Thurman everything Thomas, else, yep. the Bills went to four Super Bowls, yep. four, yep. four, and they lost four. Oh, no Who was that monster linebacker on the defensive side? Who was he? Was huge. Mm, yeah. Yeah, Bruce I, uh, Smith was the line. Bruce, Bruce Smith. Smith. You didn't want but, but, you know, the, so so the Bills had this history where we lose four Super Bowls, one with the, against the Giants Missed where the ball the dinks off. Oh, Mike, see, you remember everything. Uh-huh. Of course, we lost to the Cowboys. Uh-huh. But so the Bills and the people in western New York, you know, come on. It's just it's a factory town. It's good people eating that Salem's hot dogs, <laughs> Anderson custard. And it's just, you know, it's salt of the earth people. And, you know, they just, honestly, just a few hours south of them in the Steel City, the Steel City is the, is the city of champions. Mm. And they're up here in Buffalo saying, gosh, you know, nothing for us. And so here we go. So people can start to sense, wait a minute, this is something special. We got Josh Allen. Uh, you, you know, they're good for a couple years. They give Kansas City a run. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is our year. We're coming down to the final game of the season that's going to kind of this is going to decide. This is going to decide. Yeah. And so everyone's watching this game. It's early on. And then we see it. We see DeMar Hamlin have the cardiac uh, arrest. He, you know, there's, it's a run back, I believe. And, 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 you know, it's a hard tackle. And, and, you know, his chest and his neck make contact. But he pops up, almost claps his hand or adjusts his helmet, and then he falls over backwards. And uh, immediately people start texting. There's a long delay. So there's actually a lot of time for us to intercommunicate. So immediately my phone starts blowing up. We're watching this. And a couple of things. What was going on on TV with the commentators and, and the resuscitation, what have you, was an initial shock. But I saw the palest, most nauseated looking announcers I've ever seen in my life and commentators. And they brought in more and more and more in ESPN. The players looked pale and nauseated and they prayed and there was a great concern for a man's life Uh, but the reaction I think the visceral nature of the reaction was different than 
just a cardiac arrest. Remember, the Bills have a history of bad stuff. Do you remember a Buffalo Bills player who was paralyzed on the field? Mm. Do you remember that? He was paralyzed on the field, and it was a dramatic case where there was a surgeon, a neurosurgeon watching this, and he says, I have a new innovative therapy to, to treat acute paralysis from a, a fractured vertebrae. And it had to do with this uh, therapeutic localized cooling. This surgeon got mobilized, and I think they ended up uh, bringing the player to Florida, as I recall. Kevin Everett. Good. I'm, I'm so glad you're there. <laughs> and so he got the specialized treatment. He actually got uh, function back and what have you. So the Bills have a history uh, of this. And as all this was playing out, in my mind, I was thinking, I was thinking of the straight line. And within 24 hours, I was invited on Tucker Carlson on Fox News. And then a week later, I was in the Washington Bureau, and I went on with Laura Ingram on the Ingle Angle, and I explained the straight line. Here's the straight line. The players are heavily screened for anything that could precipitate a cardiac arrest. So they have cardiac echo. They have EKG. They actually have um, stress testing with peak VO2. Uh, so they're known entities mm -hmm. before they contract up. So there's actually a safety record. The last time there was a cardiac arrest in the NFL, by the way, was decades ago, mm -hmm. decades, decades. Um, so they have a, tr a safety track record at baseline. We have a situation where the um, Health and Human Services and the White House in early in 2021 announced the COVID-19 Community Core Program, C-O-R-P-S, Community Core Program, and the, uh, the name of the website's called We Can Do This. It's still out there. $13 billion plus of our money with no voting, with no uh, omnibus reconciliation, 13B of federal dollars goes to private entities. Hmm. And they list the private entities. It's astonishing. Uh, media outlets, Hollywood, churches, black and Hispanic groups, medical societies, uh, College of Pediatrics, College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, American Medical Association, and notably, the NFL. So the NFL takes our tax dollars in this COVID Community Corps program to push the vaccines. This is a vaccine promotion program. So they're screened at baseline. The players are healthy. They play in the NFL. The NFL takes the COVID Community Corps money, let's say around April or so, and by August, there's all this news, and this is August of 2021, uh, the NFL says we're going to have a mandate. Player Association says, no, you're not. We don't want it. Well, we want to have a mandate. Players say, no, we don't want a mandate. We want to, they go back and forth, and finally the NFL says, we're having a vaccine mandate. So they run the vaccine mandate from August of 2021 to March of 2022. And then in March of 2022, with no fanfare, no explanation, nothing, they drop everything. There's no more COVID protocols. There's no COVID testing, no vaccines, no nothing. Well, just now, like they did to Aaron Rodgers. They won't let him practice until the playoffs. Then all of a sudden he could practice right. with the team. So, so, so Aaron's <laughs> a, a, another story. So here's the straight line. So the players are screened. We know they're healthy. The federal government puts money to the NFL. The, uh, between the time the NFL... It took the federal money uh, in the summer. Another event happens in June of 2021. The FDA comes out and says the vaccines cause heart damage. The vaccines cause myocarditis. The FDA says this. Now, the cardiology guidelines say if someone has myocarditis, whether they feel it or not, they can't play because the adrenaline with the activity could trigger a cardiac arrest. Hmm. 
So we have that predicament. So the straight line is we have all this. Now you have a player, and he has the first cardiac arrest on the field and in decades, and there's this straight line. Now, in December of 2021, the NFL said 95% vaccinated. NFL say 95% vaccinated. So the straight line is the NFL takes our money, the NFL forces the vaccines, we can't let people play if they have heart damage, now we got a cardiac arrest on our hands, and the million-dollar question is, he had a vaccine. So when I went on Tucker Carlson, I said, as a doctor, you know, if I'm receiving this patient, the first question I would ask is, did he take the vaccine because it causes heart damage and it can lead to cardiac arrest? And then it, when I went on Laura Ingram, I think they were about eight days into it and still no mention of a cause. See, if they would have found, oh, he's got an abnormal heart muscle, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that we missed. Oh, that's the problem. He's got a valve problem. Oh, this happened. Uh, you know, he had a spinal cord injury. All these things were ruled out. In fact, uh, one of the uh, points that I made, even within 24 hours, I told America, he's going to survive. He'll come off the ventilator. Everyone was like, how can you say that? I said, because he met all the resuscitative parameters. It seemed like forever, but he got good CPR. He got resuscitation. And then I had one piece of information where I was cheating. Do you know what I had? What did you have? There was a bunch of people there at the game. And we were texting. Of course, there's a long – the game was ultimately canceled, <laughs> yeah, so we had yeah. a lot of time. Someone had texted the picture, and they said, Dr. McCullough, the paramedic unit is waiting in the tunnel for a very long period of time. So the paramedics got off the field, but they waited in the tunnel. And I said, well, what are they waiting for? They said they're waiting to get his mom out of the stands. Hmm. Now, why was that important? Because if he wasn't rock stable, they would have hauled it right away if they were doing CPR on him in the paramedic unit I so I guarantee they shocked him he had return of spontaneous circulation he was intubated they were bagging him they probably actually went ahead and sedated him right there in the uh, paramedic unit but he had a stable rhythm and blood pressure and that's the reason why they waited forever because they could so that mm -hmm. piece of information which came out of my phone told me that he was going to make it you can imagine as a doctor I'm in public view can you imagine if I said something really wrong yeah. And I'm completely oh, wrong. You could write a book and, about and, that. And, and, and so <laughs> the idea is, you know, America's learned to, you know, listen to Dr. McCullough because I've been right. And boy, I was right on that one. Yes, you were. Dr. McCullough has now assumed, um, or, or not, not an official role, but he's applying deductive reasoning to what we're observing that if we were living in a, in a functional society right now, it's, yeah. it's the job of medical examiners. Um, we think of medical examiners. It's it's an the the British system is called the coroner system. It's there's a death, or in this case, he didn't die, but he might w well have. And we we start to see an an increase incidence of this. And going back to the old coroner system before we really had modern scientific medicine, the coroner's job, and and now the medical examiner's job. And the medical examiner does have rigorous scientific medical training. It's there seems to be a, an increased incident of people dying, and we don't really know why. Like why is it? Is the water contaminated? Um, is there some kind of 
pollutant? Is there a, an infectious disease? Like, why are, are people, are we just beginning to observe? And it could just be reporting from the community. Hey, you know, um, my, my brother just suddenly collapsed on the The medical examiner's job is to figure out what's causing it, collate it, and publish it. It doesn't seem like they're doing that anymore, John. <laughs> they're, not, they're they're just they're marking not. a person dead, and that's it's, it, right? It's, it's just amazing. I mean, I attended two funerals of friends in my age I'm group. Sorry. Uh, yeah. or, 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 thank you. Um, it was in the month of November, and you know, I attend one funeral, and then two weeks later, memorial service, and um, they both had um, fatal cardiac events, and in both both instances. You know, I kind of discreetly ask, well, you know, was there an autopsy? Oh, no, you know, it, it, it was pretty clear it was um, you know, a fatal cardiac arrest. So, you mean no one wants to look at the heart? Like, no, no one wants to, like, maybe there, was, there, there would be something ascertainable if, if a pathologist looked, oh, no, you know, he just, it's like, well, he was only 53, <laughs> both, both of his parents were at the funeral in both an excellent physical condition. Like, and Mr. Lee, wouldn't a doctor, pathologist, wouldn't that person want to know? Wouldn't that person or shouldn't that person want to do an autopsy and know why? Well, this podcast is brought to you by Monster Energy. Tear into a can of the meanest energy drink on the planet, Monster Energy. It's the ideal combo of the right ingredients in the right proportion to deliver a big bad buzz that only Monster can. Monster packs a powerful punch has a smooth, easy-drinking flavor. Athletes, musicians, co-eds, road warriors, metalheads, geeks, hipsters, and bikers dig it. You will, too. Monster Energy is more than just the green OG. Monster has Monster Ultra, Juice Monster, Monster Hydro, Rehab Monster, Dragon Tea, Monster Max, Muscle Monster, and many more. Buy on Amazon, buy on Walmart, or go to MonsterEnergy.com and believe me, you'll find a place. Unleash the Beast, Monster Energy. This podcast is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Go to www.expressvpn.com, use code MSCS, and get 20% off your order. VPN is a power tool for your devices that enhances the internet. With it, you can do three really cool things. One, watch movies and TV from any of your devices, fast and securely. Two, you can use parts of the internet that are blocked in certain countries. Three, you can keep your internet traffic private even when you're on an unsecured public network. That's www.expressvpn.com. Use the code MSCS at checkout and get 20% off your order. Hey, what we know now is uh, the autopsy studies of patients who have died after taking a vaccine are, are few, but they're coming in. And there's one by Schwab and colleagues, now another one by Chavez, two different parts of the world, Germany and uh, Colombia. And they both have found the same thing. People who are dying after the vaccine, between 70 and 80% of the cases, it's due to a problem known to be caused by the vaccine, like a fatal blood clot, myocarditis, a neurologic hemorrhage. Now, people can die of other things. Uh, and most of these autopsies are done in young people. So, there, of course, there's some suicides, there's some drug overdose, so, some other things. 
But on a more probable than not basis, and I said this actually last week on national TV, on a more probable than not basis, it is the COVID-19 vaccine until proven otherwise. And uh, UK cardiologist Asim Malhotra, who John and I uh, met, uh, who came over from the UK uh, to us, he has actually just a tremendous personal story about his father dying after the vaccine. He's lost all his first-degree family members now. Um, he's come out, and we did a little mini uh, a little mini documentary film and said, until proven otherwise. And we went through this and said, listen, this is a brand new, widely used uh, vaccine in the population where the published studies show that when someone dies after taking it, it is due to the vaccine. So the next person who dies or has a cardiac arrest until proven otherwise. Now, it's so easy to disprove it. If the family members come out and say, listen, didn't take it. He didn't take it. That ends the discussion. In fact, such a case happened where there was a very tall young man. You may have seen this in the news reports. And it was reported that he had a six-foot blood clot inside of him. You probably saw this. And the doctors had to extract it. And immediately people are on social media, aha, he took the vaccine. The mother came out right away on social media and said, you know what? He did not take the vaccine. He's got a congenital abnormality of the cava, and he had stasis on that basis. So when the vaccine is not implicated so far, the family comes out right away and says it. What we're seeing is dozens and dozens of cases where there's an unexpected death. There either is disclosure they took the vaccine, someone tweeted it out, and there's been a lot of celebrities where this has happened, or there's now just silence. Silence from the person if they're resuscitated. Think about the public health importance of this. So many people took the vaccine. If people honestly disclosed their vaccine status, we would have a great head start on figuring out who's the next person at risk and who isn't. Right. Yeah. And John, when you went to uh, write this book with uh, Dr. McCullough, what was the biggest challenge in putting it together? Because you didn't make it a novel, you know, where it's 2,000 pages, which it probably needs to be 2,000 pages, but nobody's going to read 2,000 pages. What was the biggest challenge uh, putting that all together? Because Dr. McCullough has so much information, and as do you and history, and you've been everywhere and tons of education. That's got to be tough to put together, guys. Well, I, I recognized, and, and we discussed this in our very first conversation about writing a book together. I, I, I said, I, I, think, I think it's going to have it, – it can't just be a massive – I mean, even if, if even if it's massively organized, it, it can't just be a, a a huge, vast compilation of information that we just dump on the reader and say, you know, dear reader, you know, hope you can wade through this. It has to be a story, and and this is one thing that I've I've really noticed about the human condition. We understand things through stories. Um, we 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 really do. It's. It's um, great point. You, you you've got to humans in order to get engaged, they they have to feel like okay, I understand this character, I understand this protagonist. Um, you've taken me into his world. You know wh what is he trying to accomplish? You know or where is he trying to get? Um, and I'm going to be led through this adventure. Um, so we had to figure out how to take all of this medical stuff and and 
structure it into a narrative with you know a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the thing that I think is so great about his character as a protagonist is it's it's absolutely true. I didn't have to make anything up. He starts off just trying to treat patients. He's not talking to the press. He's just like. I've got a nurse who I'm starting to get concerned. Um, I'd like to keep her out of hospital. That's all I want to do. I just want to keep her from landing in the ICU. And he starts getting this weird resistance from his hospital administration. And vibes everywhere. And it's like, resistance, what? bad vibes, bad aura, everything, right? Yeah. yeah, Yeah, the vibes were incredible. So John and I... It, through the book, John writes most of the book. I, you know, make sure the medical parts are correct. And um, one of the things that I encouraged him to do is character develop. As I said, John, you, you know, you're mentioning all these different doctors, but you know, each one is different. And, and on top of that, we actually have chapters in there about patients, where you know, this poor woman in Texas is turned down for therapy several times, and then finally she's admitted, and, and we get to know her daughter, and, and, this whore, and she ends up dying. And what I encouraged John to do, and he went back and did it in each and every case, is develop the characters. Let people who read this book understand they're real people here. And we're studying, we're studying and we're dealing with real issues of life and death, and there's nothing more gripping than that. Is it going to work? And then John brings in other characters. So one of the the chapters that always gets the the most uh, snarky comments is uh, Cuomo sexuals. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, um, member of the brothers yeah. Cuomo. Yeah, <laughs> talk a little bit about it. Give us a sneak peek for those who haven't read it. Well, the, Give the us a sneak peek because we got hardcover now. Yeah. The, the the brothers Cuomo. Um, I mean, one could one could really write a big book of, and they're. I mean, I actually think they're funny guys. Um, just they're kind of weird guys. Um, but Chris and Andrew. Why are they weird guys, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, and you, you'll appreciate this from a guy of Italian ancestry who's living up in that part of the world. This this unbelievable nepotism <laughs> where it's like, are we in like a back neighborhood of Naples or is this like, the, you know, modern New York? I mean, this this nepotism starting with, with, with Father Mario um, and then so Chris is the CNN guy and then his brother Andrew who's undeniably my favorite chapter mm -hmm. Dr. McCullough knew that well, it was my favorite oh, chapter I love it yeah. well, well and I, I actually think Andrew was a, a charismatic guy um, and he has this he almost has this sort of Roman statesman yeah. look. He's a really Italian-looking guy. So I thought, I mean, I thought they're they're very vivid characters, visually, the way they talk. Um, but this cult of personality developed around around Go Governor Cuomo. Um, and so the, the, the title of the chapter is provocative, Cuomo sexual. Someone might think, well, that's politically incorrect. But but no. The, the origin of that name was the people themselves who who were votaries of the cult. They called themselves Cuomosexuals. Yeah, they called themselves. They it. called, like, I am a Cuomosexual. And, yeah. and they had coffee mugs and T-shirts. There was a guy that actually wrote a song with a music video. And it was this cult of personality ar around, around Andrew. And then, you know, he and his brother would talk on CNN They'd have this kind of family romance dialogue. And then 
but then what happens and and I think this is this is where the it's no longer fun and games I doubt it was the governor himself um in fact it seems very unlikely he had anything to do with it but but the New York State Department of Health issued a directive now it was under his authority that was that it was made into an executive order someone in his health department thought it would be a good idea to issue an executive order saying specifically a presumed or positive test result indicating SARS-CoV-2 infection you you cannot so if you're infected or if you're presumed infected a a uh, nursing home an assisted living facility can cannot deny you reentry so you've you've stepped out of the facility maybe you were sent to the hospital for an evaluation you are presumed to have the infection or you've even tested positive the executive order is hey nursing home administrators you have to let him back in you must let him and this was purportedly to preserve hospital capacity but think of how crazy this is cuz we are crazy. we already we already knew from risk stratification stuff coming out of italy and coming out of china and then also we 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 just already knew from i mean there there are examples of severe common colds ripping through an assisted living facility and, and causing you know widespread mortality. So it's it's it was literally forcing the fox into the hen house. I mean it it's it's not only are we opening the door, we're saying, okay, you know, pushing the problem into the most vulnerable segment of the population. So then what begins to emerge in this story is there's this crazy mortality data that starts coming out of New York state nursing homes, like mass die-off stuff. So then the question becomes, well, who was the, who was the, the wise guy that thought it would be a good idea to force these, these residents yeah. back into, into the... Um, and then the next thing that happened is they, they started trying to conceal the mortality data. So this thing escalates over the period of 2020. You get into early 2021, and, and now the dam is starting to break. So right as the FBI got involved, uh, there was a, 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 a federal attorney in, in New York that started looking at this. Right as there's a real investigative effort, like what happened with this nursing home thing? What happened with this concealed mortality data? Suddenly, three women come out of the woodwork and accuse him of sexual harassment. <laughs> now, I call me conspiratorial, but to me, it looked like there was an, a, an effort to change the subject. Uh, it seems so. Yeah, to change this. You but, mean you mean to redirect? Let's re, let's redirect. <laughs> like this thing is starting to get pretty ugly. Uh, let Let's change the subject. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Let's push it over here so we can uh, forget about that. And, and now we c the the press can start talking about his his untoward co conduct with with women. Um, so our chapter goes into this. It 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 has um very comical elements, but then it turns into a very dark comedy. 
A very, very dark one. Um, Give us a little example of uh, some of the dark comedy. Just another teaser. Well, so one of the things that I thought was so astonishing from from a publishing standpoint was, if I remember, I think he received a $5 million advance Mm -hmm. for his book, Andrew Cuomo, Lessons in Leadership. Fucking Cuomo. Well, did he win an, an Emmy? N- then he then he received an oh. Emmy. Yeah. So, but the lessons in leadership. Andrew Cuomo, I'm sorry, won an Emmy, or yeah, the he, book about him, or whatever. No, he received an Emmy from the that Motion Picture Television Association that issues the Emmy because his true performances and his daily press briefings mm. were were, were deemed to be. Uh, performances of of great dramatic. Do you hear this shit? Yeah. yeah. So, but wow. but but the book. Sorry is, to throw you off. The book is the most remarkable one because we we know that that publishing deal was signed before the whole thing before had. Before really, the whole thing hit. Yeah, it, it was like okay, this is coming. We already, wow. for whatever reasons, know that this is going to be a major crisis in New York. Let's sign a $5 million deal with the governor for his leadership lessons before he's You even demo- know anything's coming. <laughs> well, no, they knew that it was coming. Okay, well, way. you knew something's they, they, coming. They, they knew that the situation in Milan could could well yeah. to some degree. But, but in other words, before Andrew had demonstrated any leadership, he gets a, fi- a $5 million book. Ad- I mean, no one gets that. <laughs> You know, you can't make these things up. I know. That's why I got so thrown off. Uh, it, oh, and so, you know, this goes all the way forward to uh, Emily Oster's essay in The Atlantic, where she said, you know, we should just have COVID amnesty. People made mistakes. It was a tumultuous time. Let's just kind of scrub the, you know, scrub this, the, the board clean. And uh, there was a tremendous response to that. Essay. People said, "Wait a minute." You know, it's a few months before that, our CDC director came out, Rochelle Lewinsky, and said, "We've made large mistakes, and we should own them." And Deborah Burks came out, White House Task Force, saying, "Oh, we knew these vaccines weren't going to work. We know the majority of people in the hospital have been fully vaccinated." So you can start to see the positioning of people, and when there is a really, really bad situation. And there's going to be a giant investigative stage and a giant justice stage to all this. Watch the positioning of people and what they say. Watch for scapegoating because, boy, is that going to happen. I mean, already the agency has said large mistakes. So, so And people have said, well, well why can they be? Uh, Ron DeSantis has already said down here in Florida, grand jury. Mm-hmm. People have asked me, Dr. McCullough, what could po- they possibly bring up on a grand jury? I said, how about this? How about a real easy one? Wrongful promotion and advertising. Remember, any biopharmaceutical product must be presented with its risks and benefits. Everybody knows this. They watch a TV commercial about a new drug for psoriasis, mm-hmm. and there's, yeah, some, there's somebody the dancing, and they're showing yeah. their, their backless dress, and they feel wonderful, and their <laughs> life 15 is- 15-minute commercial yeah. about side right. effects. Right. It said, now, warnings, <laughs> and they, but they have to do it. They Wait, have Dr. to McCullough do it. Dr. McCullough, and uh, 
you, John, you have to laugh because the, the lady's running through the grass. I, I, and meanwhile, I, they're saying, you might die. You might have a heart attack. Your leg might fall off. You might have one finger tomorrow right, right, morning. But they have to present things in fair balance. <laughs> Never before have we had a promotion saying, listen, take a vaccine. It's safe and effective so you can see your grandmother. End of message. There must be, at this point in time, we have 1,250 peer-reviewed manuscripts on vaccine side effects. And we clearly have fatal syndromes. So, so a fair promotion would be to say, listen, warning, this could cause fatal blood clots, fatal myocarditis, or a disabling neurologic injury. That would be at least a fair, and it's nowhere close to that. So wrongful promotion, which goes all the way up to the White House. President Biden has wrongfully promoted these. It can't be done. No doctor or health system can re re do it that way. I can't see a patient and say, here, take this medicine. It's safe and effective. I have to weigh out the balances. I, I did that all day yesterday. That's what we do. The vaccines have never been presented to America with a fair assessment on what the side effects could be. And, and John, you know, you got to this point from Dallas. What made you want to be an author? and study history and philosophy, what made you want to, what was the spark that got you into all of this? Um, you know, a couple of summers ago, I, I went down to my, and I had not been there in 30 years, and I was down in the, in the Austin area in the hill country down near the Capitol. My summer camp was down there. And I, I, I pull into my old summer camp. I kind of just drove on to the campus and no one said anything. And, and I went to the administrative office and, and the, they remembered at least my family name. They're like, oh yeah, you were. So we, we, we looked into the old um, summer camp yearbooks. So they do still have summer camp. They, 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 well, they, at they, least they still have yeah. that. <laughs> and, 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 and so, so well, it, it was, it wasn't in session. I mean, it was, I just, I mean, I literally just showed up to visit the summer camp campus, but actually it wasn't in session at the time. But there was someone in the administrative office. They have a whole library of, of summer camp yearbooks going back to the 50s. They pulled my first year, and they're like, let's see if you're in it. And so they were flipping through it, and there was a picture of me as a camper, and I was lying on my bed reading a book. Um, so I just have a long history of reading. I've always liked to read. So that's, I think, where every writer's career starts is you like to read a lot. And so one day after reading many, many books, you say, I wonder what it would be like to try and write a book. Um, so that, that was something, an aspiration that kind of naturally developed just from being an, an avid reader since, since my youth. But if you read a lot of books then you invariably begin to think in terms of books. So when COVID came, there was a book um, that had started as a New Yorker article, big, long-form, beautifully written research article published in the New, York, New Yorker magazine in 2017. And I had read this article at the time. It was called the Sackler Family's House of Pain by a guy named Patrick Radden O'Keefe, great, great writer. And it was so beautifully written. But when I, when I read this book, it was about Purdue Pharma and the OxyContin story. Mm -hmm. And I read this in 2017. And what I thought was so amazing about it, and this, this touches on what Dr. McCullough was just saying, 
It's like, how did these guys systematically obscure the addiction risk of OxyContin? Like, how did they? Because the addiction risk was already understood. I mean, the 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 laboratory that created the molecule in Germany, they themselves had established the, the addiction risk of OxyContin. And what they go a decade saying it wasn't addictive, yeah, then the yeah. patent ran out, and then they, they got the Roxy for another 10 years. Well, and, and just, just the, and, and th this is something that I, I think is such a fascinating component of the whole story. What it is, is it was this tremendous organizational genius. Um, Arthur Sackler's brothers, they, they just built this marketing machinery. They had friends in the FDA. They had friends uh, in pharma pharmacological departments at medical schools. They had friends everywhere. And when I read that, that article in 2017, I remember thinking, there are instances in the pharmaceutical industry where it is absolutely indistinguishable from a mafia. I mean, that the Sackler brothers, it might as well have been the Corleone family. I mean, when it made a difference when you dig it, into it, it. And so it's, I mean, you could almost see Don Corleone saying, Do we have a friend down uh, in uh, at the FDA? I think maybe someone could take a look at this for. I mean, John, that was really good. That, thank <laughs> you. Yeah, that was really good. What would you give that, Rob? One to ten. That's a seven and a half. I'm going to give you an eight. I, and, and look, tell him that. Um, He's got a job for us if, uh, you know, he he, he kind of sees the merit of this drug. You know, I mean, it's that crass. Cool. It's it's that. Yeah. It's just. And then so fast forward three years. Well, four, because in 2021, that New Yorker article was then published as a book um, called Empire of Pain. Um, it was a New York book review book of the year uh hulu made a series about it called dope sick and everyone was reading the book including reviewers for the new york times it just isn't this astonishing how this could possibly happen and and i'm thinking uh have you guys noticed what's going on right now <laughs> I mean, I, hello, I, I, hello, it, McFly, like like Columbo, you know, with his cigar. Um, so, uh, corruption documented uh, between uh, this partnership between the state and and a large industry with lobbyists and 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 FDA. Uh, you gotta agency. go get Biff from Back to the Future to come uh, slap yeah. him around a little bit. I, I, I know. So so um, this this story of a mafia structure that develops within the biopharmaceutical complex. Um, and that, so- And isn't it, that really kind of what it is? That's exactly what it is. Um, it's um, a public-private partnership. Um, these international foundations have played very instrumental roles in this, the World Economic Forum. I don't really see this as being any anything um, with any substantive distinctions from a mafia. Um, but it's an example of, of a mafia that has cultivated such far-reaching um, contacts into the federal government or, or the state in all of these countries that 
it's we're not breaking the law. We're in effect making the law as as we want it. I want you both to hear this from one story. Uh, Rob, how about the buddy you know uh, took his kid in and this doctor just over. No, me. Po- well, I didn't know if you wanted me to say you. I was trying to help That's you out. Me. He, he took his son in and go ahead. So try. my my son the past couple um, uh, weeks he's had he's complaining of breathing problems, and I don't I'm not in his body so I don't know. Um, and so I took him to the uh, emergency room the one night, and uh, he's explaining, Dad, it feels like someone's sitting on my chest and you know it's hard to breathe. So the doctor gets there, she comes in, she's a young woman, and she says uh, she goes looks. They hook him up to some machines, and uh, I asked for further testing because I don't know what's going on. And she's like, "No, no, he's fine. He's it's just anxiety. It's anxiety why he's not breathing correctly." And I said, "Okay, so you're diagnosing this right now on this spot without any." She's like, "Sir, it's anxiety. It's it's what it is. He's he's very anxious, and and that's why he's having problems breathing." I'm like, "Well, would it hurt to do some other test? I mean." Let's just rule completely out. Maybe maybe she's right. He get, does get anxious with certain things. Maybe that's what it is. She stood fast to this, and then it was, we got into a discussion about vaccines, and I said, oh, well, we had uh, Dr. Malone on, on the podcast. Listen to this. You guys are going to die. she goes, yeah, well, a woman created the uh, vaccine. A woman did. And I'm like, well, we had, no, we had the man on. She's like, no, no, a woman created it. And it was just very dismiss everything else and I'm the doctor that's in here and that's it. It was just crazy. There's no... So, Rob goes to take his son in over anxiety and they're already jumping right to the vaccine. And how old is your son, Rob? Uh, he'll be 13. Now, that's just insane, right? And then that brings us right back to what's going on now. It's on people's minds that there's somehow the human mind started to think very differently with the onset of it. We found it from the very beginning. It was before the vaccines. You know, if the word hydroxychloroquine came up, which it did actually in some classroom exercises on campuses, immediately professors were called down to the chairman's office and, wait a minute, how does this happen like this? So it started actually before the vaccines. It was something about COVID, if, something, if somebody says something against masks or, you know, there's many uh, pressure points in the entire pandemic. But what we've uncovered in the book is the, the fundamental understanding that there has been a congealing of very powerful forces in the world. And it probably took decades for this to happen. We believe at the very top is the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization, uh, the Gates Foundation. Remember, remember uh, World Economic Forum in mm-hmm. Gates Foundation, they form CEPI, this the Coalition for uh, Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation, the Wellcome Trust, the Rockefeller Foundation. We have, you know, Gavi, Unitate, all these organizations that are vaccine promotion administration entities. All the agencies, they're all aligned. If it's the MHRA in England, the TGA in Australia, Health Canada, the US FDA, CDC, and NIH, there's an alignment. And the complex is active. If you notice, there's almost no disagreement uh, in the complex when there's this idea of uh, there will be no treatment worldwide. No, 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 no. We won't consider hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin. We won't even consider nasal sprays. 
We have a chapter in there about nasal sprays, which turns out virucidal nasal sprays work, but there was a suppression of those. There was a suppression of monoclonal antibodies. They were safe and effective. And they were government products. They were out. And they disappeared so, all of so, a sudden. So actually, Paxlovid, the Pfizer drug, has been undermined by the CDC. So we have a situation where the only thing, the only solution for this is going to be a vaccine. It actually fits with the CEPI business plan very clearly that the only solution is going to be a vaccine. There'll be a pandemic, and the entire world will be vaccinated, with no exceptions, and then we'll move on to the next issue. And the, the way the complex works is there must be declaration of a worldwide emergency, and then each country has to declare this. And uh, as we speak, the World Health Organization is meeting to actually see if they can't get full autonomy for doing this. Sure. Right now, the U.S. is still under a SARS-CoV-2 emergency, and a monkeypox emergency. What? <laughs> yes, we're under a nationwide monkeypox emergency. I remember Roger Stone had came in yeah, about a year ago, and he said that monkeypox is going to come out, and they've upped the, they, what did he say? They upped the vaccines. They started making a pile of vaccines for monkeypox. It was yeah. like a year and a half ago. Yeah, yeah so there's been a massive. So what the complex has figured out is they declare emergency, the doors of the treasuries open, the money flows into the hands of a variety of stakeholders. There's actually a lot of stakeholders. Big recipients are these biological companies. So there's in vitro diagnostic companies, believe me, that have really made out on testing, tons of testing, and suppliers for testing. There have been suppliers that make masks and, and hazmat suits, what's called PPE, personal protective equipment. They've made out like bandits, and then clearly Big Pharma, but Big Pharma is interesting. People say, well, it's Pfizer or it's Moderna or Johnson & Johnson or AstraZeneca or Novavax. Turns out the money flows to them and then they turn around and flow the money to the companies that make the vaccine. So this is an important point. You know, for Moderna, they don't make the vaccine. Isn't that no. interesting? It's made by a company called Resilience, hmm. a big uh, plant outside of Mississauga, Ontario. And um, the biodefense contractors make them. And under the emergency use authorization agreement, there is no inspection of these products when they roll off. The final fill and finish, when these things are sealed, there's no inspection for quality, purity, for uh, contaminants, nothing under emergency use authorization. So Moderna can never say, we had a chance to inspect this and this has got the real RNA in it or not. And what we know now, under EMA documents have shown this, European Medicine Association, that there's a tremendous variation in the amount of active product in each vial. So some person can get a shot and get a sore arm and nothing happens. The other person gets a shot and they're dead in a couple of days later. And it's mm -hmm. probably related to the amount of active RNA or genetic material. And what, no third-party testing, no nothing. Wow, that's unbelievable. I, I remember um, Dr. McCullough was, was telling me about how, I mean, if you take almost any other product that's manufactured, particularly for human consumption, there's all this quality control. It, it I mean, there, are, the tolerances don't necessarily have to be super tight, but I mean, it's basically the same product. There was a report that came out in Belgium and and Brussels from a kind of a regional. Uh, a Belgian newspaper about a youth cycling team and the trainer takes all the boys it's like a, an amateur youth cycling team Belgium 
It's got a cycling culture. I think there are something like 20 boys on the team, and I think they're around 16 years old. Trainer takes them. They all get their shots together. This is my understanding of, of, of the story. And I want to say four or five or six of the of the team that consists of, call it 18 to 20 altogether, all develop clinical myocarditis. It's like a third of the team. Um, and, and it's like, well, no, wait a minute. Like, how did that just happen? And then it, what is it indicating, perhaps? I mean, it would, it would need to be investigated. Um, like, what is the stuff that they receive? Don't, don't we want to know about this? Well, the VAR system, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System by the CDC has stated goals. It's been going on for decades. One of the goals is to identify a problem with a manufacturing lot that if it got contaminated, if there was a problem. So VAERS always demands the lot number. So when I make a VAERS report, if someone's died after the vaccine and I have to fill it out, the, the form online, I have to have that vaccine card because I have to enter the shot one, what lot did it come from, shot two, what were the dates. It's it, VAERS system is very rigorous. Oh my gosh, it's page after page after page. And it says at the bottom of each page, if this is falsified, this is punishable by federal fines or imprisonment. So let me tell you, what's in the VAERS system is legit. 86% of the time, it's a doctor, it's a coroner, paramedic, but it's a serious report. It's grossly underreported because if we don't have the vaccine card, we're out of luck. We can't make a report. But what we know in VAERS is they said this is a purpose of VAERS is to identify problems with lots. Well, uh, uh, there have been investigative reporters and others have gone back and just anybody can do a query, and they query uh, vaccine deaths and the lot numbers, and what they found is that 80% of the deaths that have occurred with Pfizer are from 30% of the lots, and 80% from Moderna are from 20% of the lots. And so the conclusion here is it can't just be bad luck on an individual patient basis. Now, clearly, there must be some susceptibility factors of who's going to die with the vaccine and who's not. But there's something on the material side of things, which is really important. So the material side of things really matters. And people have said it's one of two things. It's either there's too much messenger RNA in some of the vials and very little in the other. So there's, there's less spike protein, there's less chance of organ injury, or it's a contaminant. There's some contaminant in there that's toxic. But there has never been an FDA report that said, listen, we took hundreds of vials, we opened them up, we inspected them to see what the concentrations were. There hasn't been any. You know, your vegetables at the store have greater degrees of assurances on safety and quality. I just find it crazy that, that you just can't, it's like if someone breaks into your house and shoots your, your wife and she dies, it's like saying, Oh, well, someone broke in and shot or whatever. Do no investigation. No, I, I, I think a, a weapon discharged. <laughs> yeah, in I, someone died. Don't worry about it. Don't go look for the guy. That's <laughs> ah, all right. She just got shot and killed. Like, no, you'd want someone to investigate the murder, who did it, try to find the evidence. But, but here's, for this, they but, just blow it off. But here's the reason why. The people who are really, really in their heart of hearts are promoting vaccines. The doctors who I know who truly scientifically believe in vaccines have always believed in vaccines, and they've constructed um, a framework of understanding where there is an undesirable component to a vaccine program that must be eliminated. It's called vaccine hesitancy. 
the, the belief is vaccines really don't work unless every single person takes them. There's a, there's a construct out there. And so that means if one person doesn't take it, that person's hesitant, and that's the problem. So you, you see all kinds of papers that have come up in the medical literature. Over that is the, last the dumbest few, thing no, I've no, ever No, the last few years life. said, listen, the enemy here is vaccine hesitancy. Now, anything that feeds into vaccine hesitancy must be eliminated. One of the obvious things that can feed into vaccine hesitancy is deaths. And so there's a, there is a strong feeling among those pushing the vaccines to say, listen, any information on someone dying after the vaccine must be suppressed. And it was so clear yeah. that you know the, the BBC, British Broadcasting uh, Company, announced the Trusted News Initiative. The Trusted News Initiative said, we are going to stamp out vaccine hesitancy, meaning any reporting of deaths or side effects in Twitter, on the BBC, CNN, and they listed everybody involved in this, they were going to squash. Huh. And if you notice, you turn on any TV station, they're not out there saying uh, a 14-year-old boy uh, died. It, 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 it's just there is a complete suppression of death after vaccine because people are afraid it's going to lead to vaccine hesitancy. I, I th I'm sorry. I, I, I think I saw you with, was your name Len? Uh, some we were you were speaking from the Senate or somebody, and you were th throwing data after data after data at her, and she still would not believe you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I'll look. You know, I was throwing data like I was throwing darts. But at this point in time, people have said, you know, this is so frustrating because social media media is blocking this important public health information on death. We now have a, really just a stunning report, the Rasmussen report that, that was done uh, over late December of 2022. And they had a, a representative sampling frame. They asked people if they took the vaccines or not. They asked them interesting questions if they were Democrats or Republicans, if, uh, you know, all these different uh, questions. But, you know, the bombshell answer that came out of this, the, the, the news, 28% of Americans know somebody who's died of the vaccine. 28%. The, uh, the Dittmore, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the Mark uh, Skidmore, Michigan State University survey this summer, 22% of Americans know somebody who's been seriously injured by these vaccines. The Zogby survey says that 15% of people who took a survey say they have a new disease that they're seeing a doctor for. And then lastly, the CDC vSafe data. Again, self-reported data, 10 million people reporting to the CDC, 7 to 8% of people acutely after they take a vaccine have to go to the urgent care center, the ER, or be hospitalized. 25% report their incapacity the next day. We have four sources of independent survey data. To me, those proportions are big enough. People talk to each other. That means family members, church members, Bible study, school, work, you know people, you know people, you know people. Everyone knows somebody in their circles right now, and people are talking. I think one of the most telling statistics that we put out in our Substack, Courageous Discourse, was the CDC recent reporting of nursing home workers and vaccine uptake. Mm -hmm. Now, nursing home workers, the one employer group where there was clear-cut worker-to-patient spread and it led to death. In my book, a nursing home worker gave COVID to my dad. I mean, this is as clear as day. The one employer group where everybody, including the employee, should think the vaccines theoretically could be beneficial here, right? 
The rate of nursing home workers taking a vaccine now, 10%. Mm. And John, when you see Elon come out and start releasing all this information, and it's basically all in your book, did you see that coming? And and when you do see him release things to Substack, and also, why do you think he gives it all to Substack? But when you do see it, that's got to be a little, uh, got to feel a little fuzzy inside being, you know. Well, so I, I want to address that. But there's there's one other thing that I want to address that, that I think could cut through a lot of confusion of, 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 of the entire public discussion about this. Dr. McCullough mentioned that in the minds of doctors, um, we have this um, belief vaccines are good. And a lot of vaccines, I think, historically, we think of something like German measles. Um, I, I think and it's a injecting people with an immunological product to to uh, to prompt an, an immune response to a, path, a pathogen. I mean, there's decades of debate about this, going all the way back to Edward Jenner in 1795, who created a, a, a crude smallpox vaccine. But it's a, it's a huge area of, of ongoing investigation and debate. Some vaccines seem to work very well and to have very few side effects. Others seem to have a, a higher level of risk, but this is all something that I think can be discussed. When we come to the COVID-19 vaccines, I think a lot of people don't realize that we're, we're, we're entering a new terrain because it's, it's not really a vaccine in the traditional sense. It's a gene therapy. So instead of attenuating a virus, weakening the virus, or taking a, a, a live virus... Or, or, or excuse me, a dead virus, and you you inject a weakened form of the pathogen into the deltoid muscle or into the behind, the idea is you enable the immune system to recognize that. So then later, if you come across it in the wild, the real the real thing, you you, you can you, be it. Correct. You so you have an immune response. What's happening with the COVID nineteen vaccines, specifically the the Moderna and the Pfizer? It's not a vaccine in that in that sense. It's it's injecting a, a genetic code, a, me, a piece of messenger RNA code that codes for the spike protein, and it is produced in uncontrollable amounts. We don't know how how much of that code the body's receiving because as we've discussed we don't there's no quality control of, of of the product and we don't know how much of this spike protein the individual body will in turn produce how much of it will be distributed throughout the body there's so many things we don't know about this that make it a novel product um so i think people keep thinking all vaccines are the same, but but they're not. They're huge, very within this category of vaccine, and it's almost just a semantic category. They're huge variations of products. So I think that's one thing the public needs to start thinking. That about. is true because yeah. before you before right this second, I thought basically they're all the same, no. just a different label, like usual. So we we like to think in terms of categories. Mm -hmm. um, 
particularly complex things. Great point. We, we, we don't like to, but really the devil's in the details. I mean, oftentimes the distinctions are more important than the commonalities. Um, so that, that was something that, I, I mean, I hope the world will start thinking, like maybe this, it's not really an apples to apples comparison. Maybe people can start thinking about that. Rob, did you think that each vaccine was different or did you think that they were pretty much all the same, just a different name? You're talking about the COVID vaccine? Yeah. Yeah, I thought they were just all the same. So that's two people sitting here who have had the probably 200 podcasts on, on COVID and vaccines, and that's two here. We're sitting here, and we thought that they were all the same. So so, so probably the most <laughs> famous— uh, Great point, John. I can't say it enough. So so probably the most, most famous um, microbiologist, vaccinologist in history, just because he was such a huge— towering pioneer was Louis Pasteur in, in France. And he got very interested in rabies. And if you die, I mean, if you get rabies and it starts to advance to the final stadium, I mean, it is gnarly. And so he thought, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be some way to, 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 confer immunity against this thing. Cause it is a bad, bad way to die. Um, so he just had this thought, I'll take a dog that has died of rabies. I'll dissect the, I, I believe it resides in the nervous system, the, ner the tissue of the spine and the brain. I'll, I'll, I'll take the, the, uh, the, the spine, the, 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 the nerves of the, of the spinal cord, I'll just put it out in the sun, and I'll just let the sun desiccate the, the spinal cord. And then I'll take a little bit of that spinal cord and I'll dissolve it in some kind of solvent and then inject that. And maybe it will work. I mean, that's th this idea that you take a rabies pathogen and you you attenuate it just by stick, sticking it out in the sun. Uh, I mean, so th we see a history of this thing and they're not and by the way, he didn't even know what a virus was. So, <laughs> so medicine is always discovering things evolving through experimentation. And then you discover, well, gee whiz, that was a mistake. Maybe we, you know, maybe we should have, you know. But John is conservative. See, the point is, it's conservative. You know, take a little bit of it, dry it out, do something where you just, uh, you know, everyone knows about tetanus. Freak it. Freak no, it. Another t bad way to die is, is tetanus, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, so if one gets a deep tissue wound, let's say you get a dirty nail or, or you know, you're in the tsunami in Banda Aceh and you get cut by some corrugated metal and, and you have a deep tissue wound and Clostridium tetani, the, the bacteria starts to, starts to grow, it produces a toxin. It's called tetanus to toxin. There's a way to take a little bit of that toxin uh, and not the bug itself, but just the toxin, and then make a vaccine out of it. That's your tetanus shot. Your tetanus shot is not the real-life bacteria at all. It's just a little bit of the toxin. You get it, so you just get a sore arm, but you get some protection against it. So it just means if you're out hiking in the woods, you got a cut, you're nowhere close to the ER, and something's going to fester for five days, you're not going to end up with tetanus and die of tetanus out in the wood, woods. So some of these vaccines are actually very useful, especially the antigen-based vaccines, where you literally cannot get the disease from it. You cannot get the disease from it, 
but you could get some protection. Another one is the hepatitis B vaccine. That's the one, you know, I was I was excited to get when that one came out. Boy, I was first in line to get that one because, you know, I was a cardiologist. I'm working with uh, needles. I had, I had had needle sticks in the course of my career. So, you know, if I had somebody with active hepatitis and that needle went into me, then pff, I'm cooked. So the idea is, you know, most doctors like myself, uh, we took all the vaccines. I took them all. I mean, I mean, I was right on schedule with them. But the year I was born, there were only three shots, and it was five diseases that were covered. A child born today, there are now, over to age 18, there's 72 shots, and there's a total of 16 diseases covered. So part of the history of vaccines is the idea that mankind can kind of make us better, that we can make a better immune system than what Mother Nature can do. That's aspiration number one. And aspiration number two, the lofty aspiration is we can eliminate diseases. And you'll see this in the vaccine literature that we're going to eliminate, that this, that this has been eliminated from the face of the earth. It's like making something extinct on purpose. And these aspirations uh, have fueled the excitement over vaccines, which, by the way, is the same in veterinary medicine. Do you know our pets are getting more and more vaccines? Yep. So this is part of biotech development. So vaccines are presented in a way, if you ever go out on social media, every public health agency, there's always a caring nurse administering a vaccine. People are pointing to their stripes and everyone's excited to show their yeah. vaccine card. That's the reason why in the case yeah. of DeMar Hamlin or whatever, it's like, wait a minute, if, you were, if this was such a big deal to show your vaccine card, to show you're proud to get the vaccine or to get into a restaurant or a football stadium. And by the way, the bills actually required it to get into the stadium. Then now we have a death, a sudden death event of which could be related to the vaccine, and there's no word on whether he took it. I think that's the reason why Bills fans, including myself and America at large, is furious over this because people know, wait a minute, so many people took the vaccine, they could be at risk too. And unless people start, I think, fulfilling their public health obligation, whether it's the patient or the family member, each one of these unexpected deaths, they need to come out and say whether or not they took the vaccine. We shouldn't be guessing on this. This is too important. This is life or death. I just can't believe nobody's brought that up, yeah. like, big time publicly. I can't believe I've it. I've been saying it. Like, when it happened, I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor, but... Maybe it was that just that hit, right? Maybe it was, but just investigate it. Why not take the time? Well, it's a question. To see? Did he take it or not? Hey, and if he did, then let's do some more in depth stuff. Yeah. If he didn't, great. Let's figure out what it was. But why just? It, it's a it's roll a it out. it's a principle of of true crime investigations yeah. um, that if if something suspect and you know who who for, in whom suspicion you know is. I think very, very reliable um, mothers. Um, mothers, well, it's not necessarily, you can certainly get hysterical mothers that, that overreact to things. But if, if someone, if a child falls ill or dies and there's anything mysterious about it, it's, uh, what I have observed in my career is, uh, you know, there, there's no better investigator than a mom. I mean, they won't give up. It's like, no, wait a minute. Like, I still don't really. Like, mm -hmm. Can you explain? Mm -hmm. And, you know, then they start kind of going down the rabbit hole of requesting documents. Because they, they get nuts. They want to know. They, yeah. they, 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 they <laughs> you want, don't want that. <laughs> they want to know what happened to their child. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they um, stop at nothing. 
my my second book was about a guy who disappeared under very mysterious circumstances. Great book, by the way. Th thank you. That, that's why I was I saw the true crime and I kept yeah. going back and I go, I get it. His first, I'm not trying to say, but John's first two books, they they were monsters, and then went to this, and this is all a crime. You know, true crime, crime. But you wouldn't think it because doctor, but it's true crime. Yeah. Right, right. Well, so what What I began to observe, and, and the boy's mother had already observed this, was um, why is it that these that no one, neither the, the Forensic Medicine Institute nor the police, no, no one wants to investigate this? It's like... Why not? I they mean, paid off. I, I mean, her 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 attitude was: there's no faster way to get rid of me than just investigate it, figure out what happened, document it, give me the report, and then I'll go away. But they they <laughs> right. Just but, give me the <laughs> right. But so you you know when when people say, um, you know, um, we we would prefer not to discuss that. There must be some reason why you're not looking into it and why you don't want to discuss it. And and I I think that's where we are at this moment in history. It was at December uh, January the seventeenth. What we're in right now is the cover up. The there's emerging recognition. Something isn't adding up in this program. Like some there's too many young people that are just unaccountably collapsing. Our newscasters in the press box suddenly, these are young, fit people. Why are they suddenly collapsing? And now the broader tribe is now awakened. You know, it's like, okay, now wait a minute. What's going on here? What's going This is kind of maybe that Dr. McCullough that, you know, everyone was saying was a little crazier. Like, mm -hmm. maybe that guy has a point. Maybe he, was, maybe he was right about a lot of stuff, and then this guy Elon Musk, we're not all too quite sure about, is sure releasing some good stuff. Well, I, you know, I can tell you Musk has played a, a big role in terms of having us understand that the U.S. intelligence community is involved here. I mean, the FBI, the CIA, they're involved. And if we have federal agents... In Twitter, giving Twitter direction, you know, we've got some serious questions to to address. I wanted to make the case that this issue of people dying and the family saying nothing about the vaccine, one way or the other, has to be deeper than, quote, a cover-up. There has to be... Uh, some type of guilt, remorse, almost a trance-like state. I was noticing that all the ESPN co commentators, all the players, they look pale and nauseated. This is what I think. I think a lot of them were saying to themselves, oh, my God, this is the vaccine, and it's in me. Mm -hmm. It's in me. I, I'm worried about him. They're doing CPR on him, but I'm thinking, you know what? It's in me. I think most of these sportscasters said, oh, my Lord, this is in me. Right. This is what this doctor said. And, and, and one of the pieces of information that's been so heavily contested has been something that's just been uh, uh, in the peer-reviewed literature in a letter to the editor that I authored with Dr. Panagis Polycritus, who's a, um, uh, a Greek scientist in Italy. And he took the publicly available 
blog reporting of all these European athletes dying. And it's on a website called, uh, I believe, gooddoctor.com. And, uh, and it's just it's just reports. They just he just there's somebody just collecting the publicly reported the soccer player died and on the field, and uh, there were some comparator data prior to the pandemic, where in all these soccer leagues, both pro and semi-pro, and there's a lot of them in Europe. John lived over there. There's a ton of these leagues. The number of cardiac arrests ever recorded per year, annualized uh, over years before the pandemic, 29 per year. 29. It can happen. 29. What the blog website has accrued so far, total, now this includes current players, retired players, older players, anybody who is a player is, is part of this. They just, that's how the decision was made to keep the data. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a cardiac arrest, it's just who's passed away. The number came up to 1598 uh, for 21 and, and 22 years. And 1101 of them were fatal, of these arrests uh, were fatal. And so that was uh, put out there with some actuarial data about uh, children under age 15, which is also rising across Europe. So that got into this polycretus report. And I mentioned it on Tucker Carlson, the top line results, and people went nuts. And, I, you know, fairly, I, it, it's been peer-reviewed and published. I put it out on Twitter. People went nuts. Well, those aren't all current athletes, and they're not all cardiac arrest, and this is terrible data. I want to debate you, and these, and these, uh, all this, all this uh, vim and vigor was uh, flowing. So I reached out to Polycretus. I said, "Geez, you know, we we really got them going now." I said, well, "Why don't we just do a restricted analysis? Why don't we?" The the data prior to COVID was uh, uh, players uh, that are active under age thirty five. Let's just restrict it to active players under thirty five. And uh, then let's go through them, which we did. And let's put some criteria that it has to be a cardiac arrest, that there has to be at least four different press reports on it so it's not hearsay. And that was done. And the number that came out annualized per year now comes out to 283 per year. So that's an apples to apples. So it's gone from 29 to 283 annualized. That's a tenfold increase. So so what we did, listen, what we did, and this is what good scientists do, is we took feedback and we actually have now submitted uh, what's called an erratum or Panagias is calling it a corrigium, which is just a way of saying, listen, we want to update this with a restricted analysis. And the editor has said, fine. That's how science works. Science works in an iterative process. But the point is, I was on Laura Ingram uh, a week later and I said, you know what, the annualized number, and I got the data out. I put the exact, I've been in multiple interviews, including this one, put the data out, and you know what, all these attackers just melted away. It's like, okay. Knocking the, the, them down they're, one they're, by one. People are using a <laughs> yeah. term, people are using a term over the target, meaning that when you get to a pressure point on this, there's some type of agenda. The agenda outwardly stated is to get a needle in every arm. That, that is the agenda. It, it, that's, that's the objective, a needle in every arm. It looks like every six months, it looks like with no end in sight. N nobody said if you after you get six, you're done, or after you get four, it's done. There's never any announcement when you're done. The emergency keeps getting extended and extended and extended without any stopping point. They've never said, well, if we get to this number, we're going to stop declaring the emergency. So everyone's basically assumed there is a an agenda. There, there is obviously a vaccine agenda. Have the, the question yeah. I always have is have the 
people that are mandating these or telling you to get them, I mean, as some I'm sure have, have they gotten it themselves? Do we have factual evidence to show that the ones that are pushing it have actually got it stuck, have actually got it? Uh, what I would say is take everything at face value. Why not? So if, uh, if Justin Trudeau comes out and he says he's getting a vaccine, take it at face value. If, if uh, Anthony Fauci said he took uh, three or four vaccines and gets COVID, take it at face value. Walensky has three or four vaccines and gets COVID, take it at face value. Like, why wouldn't you? Now, if they didn't take the vaccine, so listen, I'm not taking it for this reason and I got COVID, they could have used it as an example and said, listen, I didn't take the vaccine. Look, I got COVID. But instead they took three or four shots and they got COVID. That's an example of <laughs> yeah. the vaccine not working. So honestly, I, I, I would say take everything at face value. Assume there is no deception. John said one of the rules here is everything's in the open. So when the federal government said they gave money to the NFL to push the vaccines, it's right there on the website. Our government, our tax dollars went to the NFL to push the vaccines. The NFL pushed the vaccines. Now we have a Buffalo Bills player to cardiac arrest. It's a straight line. Do you see I me? Mean, just the idea is we should take it seriously. But you'd have to assume out of all the things that people want us to do in the pandemic, number one is to take a vaccine and take one every six months. That would, that would be the, the pr supreme goal of the pandemic, right? That's 100% that's of the messaging. That's been 100% of everything we heard. And it's not just the United States. It's every region of the world, every country in the world. And what's interesting is it doesn't matter what vaccine. That's, that's, to me, that's the most interesting thing. Wait a minute. You know, China's right now a cauldron of new variants. We're hearing about the Chinese really getting sick. Do you know the Chinese right now, the current Chinese menu of vaccines is 12 of them? 12? 12. 12. Isn't it interesting in the United States, we have Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson, Johnson, or Janssen, and then we have Novavax. Actually, those are th mechanistically three different mechanisms. And nobody seems to care which one is the best and which one's the worst. There's not a single employer in the United States that said, you know what, we're going to have a mandate, but we're going to mandate you take this vaccine, Pfizer, because we think it's the best. Or we're going to mandate you. Isn't it? Why do the employers and the hospitals not care which one is the best? When, it, when there's four products, I can tell you there's a winner, there's a loser, and there's somebody in between. Why are there no comparable statistics? Does it go back to what John had said where people, they're, they're just, they're not, basically, people want to be told what to do. Just vaccine is good. Just go get a vaccine. That this, this, this is this. This is this generalized categorical thinking. It's I think of these things now. It's it's almost like a talisman. Like if you look at a, you know, they found like Paleolithic hunters that were locked in glaciers, and they'll have like a tattoo, and it's representing the you know the stars. Um, it's like if you if or if you. I mean, we even think of it in the Christian tradition, the Holy Communion. It's almost like receiving the injection. is It's like your first communion. Yeah, that's what they're making it out to be. It, it really, it really yeah. seems. But there's another, there's another error in all of this. It, it's a, it's a thought. It's just an, 
an error in the basic way in, in which people are thinking or not thinking. Um, namely, if you have something that is a new phenomenon, it, it may not be completely new objectively, but it's the first time humans have really started seriously observing this phenomenon. It, we call it a novel a novel phenomenon, whether it be a novel disease, a novel medical product, whatever it is that we're observing. It's a complete error to say, unless you already know every single thing there is to know about it, you can't talk about it. I mean, this is one of the things about Dr. McCullough. He has been waking up every morning at four and reading all the literature and trying to make sense of this. You can't make sense of something unless you talk about it. You have to, like, what are you guys seeing here? From the very beginning of this thing, it, we were just told it's safe and effective. That's, Put the horse blinders on and listen, right? That's all there is to it. There, there shall be no questioning and no discussion. Yeah. I mean, the only thing I can think of in, in history that's anything like this. I was just going to ask you that. Have it, you ever seen anything it, like it, this? It's, it's, it is a expressly religious institution like the Holy Office of the Inquisition during the Counter-Reformation or an ideological office of propagating an ideology, um, the Soviet Union, um, the uh, – Nazi office of enlightenment and propaganda, the, the Stasi, uh, you know, the office of the secret police in, in East Germany. Um, it's this is the truth of economics or politics or, or, or whatever, and there shall be no discussion of it. And anyone who questions this assertion, <laughs> exactly, arrest him, Off with exile him. Um, cancel him, kick, kick throw him, him away, of, lose his job, ruin his life. Precisely. So the what what we're in now is an arena in which those who are imposing the orthodoxy claim to represent claim science claim right. right? Or claim. it's an assertion. We mm. are science. I think Anthony Fauci even said, "I am science." <laughs> um, but but it's not just science. It's not only claiming that that they represent science and they are science, but it's also science in the public good. So this is good for you. We have all the claims for that. We the the powers that be would say they hold information, and anything that opposes it now is misinformation. And once somebody grabs that high ground, oh, I've got the information, so therefore you have misinformation. Now we have the second villain. Remember the first villain was vaccine hesitancy? Mm -hmm. The second villain is misinformation. Now we have a misinformation task forces, and we have people giving messages out there. There was a doctor today who put out a message on LinkedIn, misinformation kills, you know, like it's a smoking gun. And it's like a that, James Bond movie. And you know, <laughs> word of misinformation is very interesting. It's it came out in around the 1500s or so in, in English literature. It was Washington Post said it was word of the year in 2018. 2018 misinformation word of the year because it was used in partisan politics. It was found to be a very useful word. It was used extensively during Nazi Germany, Office of Propaganda. So it's a propaganda term. 
but now we have situations where where uh, agencies have picked this up. The American Board of Internal Medicine announced a misinformation policy. They have a policy, but they didn't say what it is or what it isn't. There wasn't any teaching modules. There weren't any kind of media guidelines. Very broad, right? That was in September September of 2021. And in my case, they went back to March of 2021 and said, aha, in the Texas Senate, you violated our misinformation policy. Wait, your policy didn't exist. And and I I gave all the support for what I do. And and, and America's come to know me that I cite the literature. So everything's pinpoint. Everyone can fact check everything. So I gave back, I gave all the citations, submitted it to them. They said, nothing you told us was compelling. And so therefore, we have now voted in this committee. Not a single doctor on that committee is my peer. They've never ever published on COVID-19. I have 60 peer-reviewed publications on the topic. They haven't written a book. They haven't testified in the U.S. Senate or you know anything close to my, uh, my expertise in this area or in medicine in general. And this committee has voted that I be stripped of my internal medicine and cardiology board certifications, which means three years of residency, three years of fellowship, effectively my career. I'm being stripped of my career based on violations of a policy that didn't exist at the time I made those statements. You can see how how unmoored this has become. There's, there's ex post facto. There's no due process. There's no fair rules of evidence. Uh, there's no fairness. This is important. Fairness is an important concept. We use the court system, where, whether it's a jury trial or a bench trial. Well, actually, what we're trying to get to is fairness. We now have corporate policies, vaccine mandates, Military people have lost their jobs and lost their pay. Uh, people having their lives destroyed, with no opportunity for the appeal to fairness. And John, you know how they did all that with the military and, and people left, and you know how to get the shot or they had to leave. No compensation. Have you ever seen anything like that? Only in these moments in history where, like in the '60s, where like you get your head chopped off, you know. Well, I mean, so so those years that I lived in Vienna, I I oftentimes thought about this. Um, So Austria was an independent republic Um, during the '30s. um, the The German Nazi Party was actually illegal in Austria. And you've got this little neutral republic that's like desperately trying to hang on to its independence. And then 1938 comes and it's, there's some complex negotiations. But ultimately what happens is the German army and the German uh, state subsume Austria in this sort of annex, this annexation. A lot of the debate in history has been, well, you know, all of the Austrians wanted this anyway. They were happy to, you know, do the Hitler salute and and, and wave the flag. So we talk about this, like how how easy it is with a top-down directive, particularly when you have the military and the police behind you, to very quickly get... almost every single person in a society to do exactly what you want them to do. And I I remember talking with young people who were born after the war. They never experienced what this period was like. They never experienced, for example, the insecurity of, of the 30s, the Great Depression, the runaway currency inflation and so forth. And they certainly didn't know what it was like to have the Gestapo suddenly in town. But everybody kind of made the assumption 
where I, a young man, you know, in 1938 or 1939 here in Vienna, I would have protested. I would have been the guy that stood up and raised my hand and said, I'm putting my foot down. This is an outrage. You know, Gestapo, SS, all you guys are SA, you know, get, get out of here. And to which I say, no, you wouldn't have. You think you would have. But when the chips are down and it's, look, don't get excited. You can keep your little job here at the university or at the hospital or wherever it is you work. You won't have any troubles with your family. Like, you're, you're just fine. Just shut your mouth and you'll be okay. I, I submit 95% of people just make the rational calculation. Um, I guess I'll just keep my mouth shut. I think so, too. Uh, Remember that for the vaccines, uh, out of all the sectors, we had very little protest in the United States. But the sector that protested the most vehemently, nursing, hmm. in front of hospitals. Remember, nurses held protests They held, because the nurses knew the vaccines weren't safe. They were already seeing uh, vaccines. They've seen it with their own eyes. They saw it with their own you eyes. You can only keep that in for so long, but you right, know what's in, You know what's interesting? When you look at issues that are outside someone's own personal investment, if you go back to the Vietnam War, the people protesting the Vietnam War were people who, they, they themselves, they weren't hurt by this. They were on college campuses. They were, uh, you know, they just didn't think we should be in the Vietnam War. And it was young people who protested. Uh, when you look at even the more modern protests, uh, the Me Too movement, largely young women, Black Lives Matter, largely young men, protest is a manifestation of youth. When these vaccines rolled in, where's the youth? There's, there's, there was a very little outside of a one or two college protests. I think there was one at Indiana University where they tried to muster up a lawsuit. The youth on this one were so compliant. There was just no resistance. Oh, I'll take one because I got to finish up. I'll, uh, you know, I'll, uh, the people in their corporate jobs. And the way these, universities behaved was just, uh, historians are going to write about this. Do you know there's some universities that mandated the vaccines for the students, but not the faculty, because they knew the faculty was going to oppose it. That happened. Mm. There's a vignette that's really instructive. Uh, there was a graduate student, I believe it was in upper Midwest, Chicago somewhere. There's a graduate student. You know, and you're working on a PhD, that can take forever, right? So you have all these years, you have the qualifying exam, then you have the dissertation. There's a PhD student who's pretty far along. And he said, listen, I'm not going to take the vaccine. And he had some reason why he was not going to take the vaccine. And uh, they said, well, you have to take a vaccine. He said, well, I'm not going to take it. And he goes, I'm just going to transfer. I'll just transfer to university. They met the faculty, the um, registrar, all the aspects of the university met. And they changed the rules for him and said he cannot transfer his credits to another university. Mm. So they took an extra effort. It's a, universities to meet and change bylaws and things like this, but they did it specifically to injure him. And what we're seeing is we're seeing specific behaviors in COVID before the vaccines and now where people are taking extra effort to injure other people worldwide. And it's a very interesting observation because normally if it's just yeah, people would say, listen, get out of here. Just go somewhere else. Why would they care? 
Why would they change it to actually hurt this young man's progression? And we're seeing it all over. Throughout the book, because I don't want you guys to miss your flight, <laughs> uh, what is the favorite part of your book? And with since you've released the book, what has come out that you knew would come out eventually at some point in time, but just the validating part that maybe you're waiting for as of now, just inside, just... <sighs> Well, the the part of the book that that I feel uh, is is most inspiring um, are just the success stories of of doctors treating patients. Um, old fashioned, I'm not going to let my patients die. Um, I'm going to do the best that I, to the best of my ability and judgment. You know, to quote the Hippocratic Oath. And we have a few chapters. Um, there was a wonderful guy up in uh, Monroe, New York, Zev Zelenko, a lady in Dallas, um, Yvette Lozano. And, and they were just family practitioners. I'm not going to, I'm going to do whatever I can. And real success stories, like people getting better, feeling better quick, quickly once the therapy is initiated. Then you have this really dark stuff. I mean, that that's just unfathomably dark where these patients land in hospital, and there seems to be real reason, observational and some pretty good randomized controlled trials as well, showing that ivermectin really can reverse this, you know, end game of, of a person's blood oxygen going down, got this downward spiral, putting them on the vent. And we document these cases where the hospital administrators, although they openly admit, your mom is, we're going to have to be honest with you. We're going to have to level with you. She's probably going to die. So the family would say, well, can we try ivermectin? And we document these, these vignettes in the book where the hospital says, no, we've and this is true story this too. Is, this is a true story. We, <laughs> this is true. I've, I've known plenty of people and, who've been and, there. And, and and not only ivermectin, uh, corticosteroids, yeah. extra strength aspirin. I mean, Doctor McCullough was advising. There's a particularly heart wrenching account in, in our state of Texas where Doctor McCullough he doesn't have power within this hospital to to treat patients. He's an external advisor. And he's just telling this young woman, here's what to ask for for your mom. Like, this could give her a chance of survival and everything from, you know, anticoagulants to, to uh, combat microthrombosis in the lungs. You know, ivermectin, this seems to have some therapeutic benefit. And the hospital, to the, to the very end, no. We, FDA approved for other things reconditioned, used in the, he pointed this out. He said, I guarantee you there are other patients in the hospital that are actually re receiving some of these drugs just for other conditions. What we're being told is you can use them for other conditions. But not this. But not for COVID-19. <laughs> you, you could have- a You got to go find that other patient's room and knock on the door and give them a 20. You could have <laughs> a patient who's got scabies and they're getting ivermectin here and then a patient next door fighting for their life with COVID, 
And the hospital, the doctor, the administrators say not a single milligram of ivermectin. Mm. And, uh, you know, th there's turns out that virtually every drug we would use as an outpatient could be and can be and should be continued as an inpatient in a process called medication reconciliation. We're actually supposed to do this. People are supposed to bring in their home medicines, uh, you know, and, and, and that can kind of assist us in taking care of patients. We do it all the time. Patients are, have a variety of conditions. They bring in their home medicines. It's right there on the bedside table. The nurses uh, account for this. This is completely normal. But with COVID-19, on these specific medications, and it turns out that there was a large randomized trial of colchicine. A lot of people don't talk about it. It's the largest prospective double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial. It really works. Hmm. It should be continued as a simple drug that was repurposed as an anti-inflammatory. We should be using it in COVID-19. Uh, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin people heard about because they really work. That's the reason why, you know, people didn't hear about lopinavir. That was tried. That was a dud. We got rid of that right away. All the ones that didn't work got jettisoned, but the ones that really worked, you heard about them. Here in Florida, uh, Dr. Roster, who testified in the uh, December uh, 10th, 2020 U.S. Senate hearings, Dr. Roster and his wife, critical care doctors, did a prospective comparative study of early on ivermectin versus those who didn't receive ivermectin for Florida hospitals is called the ICON study. It was published in one of the best journals, CHEST. They found over a 50% reduction in mortality. This is US data published in one of the best journals. I said when ICON came out, I said every single American should at least be offered ivermectin as a chance for survival because it's safer than Tylenol. It is, there's no reason why it falls into the category of, come on, this is desperate. People could die. Why not give it a try? And the observation that hospital administrators, doctors, chiefs of staff, they went to committees. In the case in our book, the hospital actually hired expensive outside attorneys, expensive <laughs> outside attorneys to fight in court so the hospital would not administer ivermectin. There were other court cases where the families were desperate. They went to court and said, please, just we want a court order. We'll, we'll bring it in ourselves. We'll do it. And even with a court order where the court says, give her ivermectin, the hospital still disobeyed a court order. So the hospitals had an incredible conviction that not a single COVID patient should get a milligram of ivermectin despite the positive base of data. And just just to show you how weird this is, I mean, contempt of court. Like, <laughs> the court issues the order saying, primary care physician will be allowed to enter the hospital and administer ivermectin. Isn't and, that contempt of the court? Of the court? And, and, and the, ho the <laughs> hospital think. would say no. To a wow. judge, yeah. And then, I mean, it gets even weirder. Can I say no to a judge? <laughs> it gets, some some hospitals, the patient, so like, no, we're not going to, to execute the court order. Patient dies. Posthumously, the hospital tries to get the order overturned. It's like they don't even want a precedent on the books that under these circumstances, a family asking for this drug could 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 uh, could could prevail and have it administered. I mean, it's it's a really really dark and shameful moment in, in American history, 
And Dr. McCullough pointed this out to me the, the other day. There was a French team in Marseille that just published the, me the mechanism of action of ivermectin. Tell us right. about Right. Well, that. there's been two papers, one by Hazen and colleagues, and I'm a co-author, then one by Jackie Stone in Zimbabwe. Congratulations. That, yeah, that show that ivermectin antagonizes the spike protein on SARS-CoV-2. The spike protein is actually causing red blood cells to stick together and called agglutinate. When they stick together, they don't travel through the lungs normally, and they don't pick up oxygen. That's the reason why the oxygen saturation goes down. When they do autopsies in COVID-19, illness, deaths, they find micro blood clots in the lungs, nearly everybody. So ivermectin actually unhooks that. It's an unhooking phenomenon. And in both the Hazen and the Stone papers, they have really, really sick patients with COVID. And they give them ivermectin and their oxygen saturation comes up and they revive them. Now, it's not a cure. We use other drugs and you certainly can treat COVID without ivermectin uh, as an outpatient and survive. But the point is, doctors found it to be a useful drug. It's in two dozen guidelines. Hydroxychloroquine, by the way, is in two dozen guidelines worldwide. And these drugs, if the doctor thinks it's safe, why not give it a shot? And why did the hospitals take this stance? There's a vignette up in the upper Midwest again where a family member tries to come in and give ivermectin to a patient, and they have security pat him down to kind of find it like it's, mm. like it's contraband. There's another case in Texas where there's a woman, and she's just uh, desperate. They, the doctors tell the husband she's going to die. Um, uh, that uh, she didn't take the vaccine, she's uh, turning down remdesivir, she's going to die. And uh, the husband said, well, fine, I'm just going to take her home. And he takes her out. She's hypoxemic. She's very, very sick. He dribbles in the veterinary ivermectin, the liquid ivermectin, and revives her. She survives. They follow all the tenets of the McCullough Protocol. And it was so gratifying because John and I are at the Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth, and the family shows up. And they wanted to get a picture with That's me. That's right, right. And, and, you know, it's the type of thing where uh, I don't want to overstate any specific medicine because, honestly, I've used them all. I've used them all. And I, I think that it still takes about four to six drugs to treat a difficult patient. And we don't have any conclusive studies. Conclusive study would be it would be as big as a vaccine trial. It would need to be about 40,000 patients prospective randomized double blind placebo control. We don't have that. We have little snippets of, of information that give us an idea of a signal of benefit, acceptable safety. We got to put drugs in the combination and go. It's go time. It's time to save lives. What I didn't see in the practicing community, and I certainly didn't see in the hospitals, I didn't see any go time. I didn't see any bravado. We're three years into this. Do you know there's no single hospital that claims to be a center of excellence for COVID-19 nationwide? There's been no advancement in inpatient protocols. There's no Mayo protocol, no Harvard protocol, no Duke protocol. Do you know nobody from Mayo Clinic comes on and says, we can, we've now can treat COVID this way. A Mayo Clinic is leading the way. Now, they, they claim to be— Is John Hopkins um, treating it yet, or they're no. still running the other way? No, they're still—I mean, no one is stepping out. No, no one's even— that's, put, that's amazing, right? No one even put a tent out in front of their hospital to wow. treat patients. You know, a doctor in our book did. He put a tent outside his hospital. It's Dr. Didier Raoul. Didier Raoul in, in Marseille, France, who was the most cited microbiologist in Europe and had spent a career, uh, decades, working on— drug repurposing. Um, for, for your listeners that aren't familiar with that, you, you take a drug that's already has a, a known safety profile that it seems to be useful in treating other conditions, and you just ask yourself, well, we have a new condition that's come along, but there may be mechanisms of illness that are similar 
to other illnesses, maybe the thing that's working with, with one illness w- would work with this one as well. I mean, it's just basic deductive reasoning. DDARL immediately starts treating patients in, in Marseille. And this is what I thought was astonishing. The international, the truly global reach of this biopharmaceutical complex, he encounters the exact same resistance in France that McCullough... And then there's another case that we write about, also a very gratifying but also astonishingly strange case, a guy named George Fareed, who Harvard-trained... Um, himself was at the NIH when Fauci was a young guy cutting his teeth, has decades of clinical experience. The other thing about Dr. Fareed, he was an early innovator in treating AIDS with repurposed drugs, has received international awards for treating AIDS. He liked DDA Raul and, and, and Marseille. He's in the Imperial Valley of Southern California. He, he says... We've got sick patients. A lot of these people are older. They have diabetes. They're, 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 they have metabolic. Like, we have to start treating now. And he has this immense success in keeping people out of hospital. But every step of the way, the California State Medical Boards, the, the Department of Health, the local press are harassing, All over, censoring. Right? Um, so it's, it's a very strange... And I still, I, I've worked, been working on this book. We've been work, we've been talking about this for over two years now. I still find it deeply strange and disconcerting. Yeah, I, I would say that the people we've mentioned, they're not just talking a good game. George Freed and Brian Tyson publish a book, and it's it's we treated six thousand patients, and this is how we did it. And they have a monograph in there that outlines all the data. Didier Rialt has said publications. We treated 10,000 patients. This is what happened. So this is kind of this put up or shut up. This isn't just talking about it. This is actually doing it and then publishing it and showing the results to the world. We haven't seen that. How does the Mayo Clinic treat patients? Haven't seen it. How about Duke? Nothing. Harvard? Hopkins? Nothing. Who else is putting up or shutting up here in terms of this bravado. This has been the biggest problem that's hit our country. And our marquee medical institutions evaporated. You've never seen somebody, we're here at Harvard and we are making advancements and this is what we're doing and giving America hope. There's never been anybody that came on the news that gave America hope. There never was an update. We're going to have a special COVID update today and we're going to bring on the leading medical systems and showing how they're improving survival in COVID. Nothing. There's still no comparative statistics. People in states don't even know where to go if they got COVID. Which which, which hospital is the best in terms of survival? I don't even know. I mean, is the base all money? Is so, this all greed behind all of it? Well, so, so, so here's here's something that I think any listener can 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 walk away from. If nothing else, they they should pay attention to this. So. In researching this biopharmaceutical complex, we identified two or three of the key, well, four of the key players. It's the Rockefeller Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Economic Forum, and uh, the Wellcome Trust. And they are an immensely organized and well-capitalized consortium of 
foundations. They formed a, with, with other partners, they formed uh, an organization in the year, I think it was founded in 16. It was officially inaugurated at, at, in Davos, Switzerland at the World Economic Forum Annual Conference in Davos in 2017. And it's called the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness innovations. The Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, C-E-P-I. That doesn't sound good. CEPI issued a preliminary business plan, and anyone can Google that, CEPI, C-E-P-I, preliminary business plan. And this is the master blueprint for in the event of an emerging disease, infectious disease epidemic, this is our blueprint. It's about a 65-page document. The entire business plan, the entire blueprint of pandemic response from start to finish is vaccine development. There will be one response to a complex international public health problem, one response, one response only, mass vaccination. I don't think the word treatment appears once in the document. In 64 pages? I, I knew when you said SEPI, I knew for some reason that was going to be bad. Well, uh, how often did we ever hear any aspirational statements from our public health officials about we're getting better on treatment, innovations in treatment, treatment's going to save lives? We didn't have any discussion on treatment, no updates. Uh, there were no consensus conferences on treatment, no Bethesda conferences, uh, nothing. In fact, uh, we had money. This COVID community core money, I think, really needs to be tracked. Uh, you can go to on the website, uh, We Can Do This website, and it says, who are the partners? And you click on the partners. There's nearly 4,000 media outlets that took money to promote the vaccines. And the money that went to promote the vaccines, I think, also was money to suppress any information on treatment. Remember, treatment, if someone knew they could get treatment, that would lead to the bad guy, and the bad guy is vaccine hesitancy. Remember, treatment would lead to vaccine hesitancy. Anything that leads to vaccine hesitancy bad. is bad. So they mapped everything to receive the vaccine. And I, When I mentioned this on Tucker Carlson back in May of, of 2021, Tucker really got worked up. He's like, wait a minute. He goes, how come we're not talking? People are dying, and how come we're not talking about treatment? There has been a very intentional, and this is a theme of our book, a conclusion of our book, is there was an intentional, coordinated, and comprehensive worldwide suppression of all forms of treatment for COVID-19, in my view. Worldwide. Worldwide. In my view, to intentionally, this is the crime, promote fear, suffering, hospitalization, and death in order to prepare the world to accept mass vaccination. I think the suppression of early treatment was preparatory to get the world to accept a vaccine because if someone felt they had no other choice, there was they're going to either die with COVID or take a vaccine, they'll take a vaccine. Also, also it's a mechanism for maintaining an emergency. So it's so important for everyone to understand, like, legally, what is an emergency? We think an emergency, you know, there's a grease fire in my stove. It's an emergency, you know, grab a fire extinguisher. 
But emergency actually has a distinct legal meaning in, in the legislative framework of pandemic response. So there was a, 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 a statute, a law that was an act that was passed in 2005 called the PREP Act, P-R-E-P, preparedness something or other for in the event of an infectious disease. And an emergency is an, a very important concept because when the depart when the Secretary of Health and Human Services declares a public health emergency, it automatically unleashes this massive response in which, first of all, money, public money, the Treasury is opened and it's and, and money is is then distributed under the the auspices of health and human services a that's the first thing but b and perhaps even more importantly complete liability protection wow if if you're in the business of pandemic response whether it be a product or hospital protocols or or whatever it is and and you're in the business of pandemic response, it's defined by the PREP Act. There's, there's no, there's no legal liability. So, and the final piece of this is these vaccines. A lot of people don't fully understand this. They were widely distributed and even mandated to the public as an emergency use authorized product. So if, if it's happening within the context of the emergency, this product can be distributed and even mandated on the public without all of the safety review and testing and long-term analysis and incremental. All of that caution is thrown to the wind because it's a public emergency. emergency. Wow. Hmm. And like you said... You never hear treatment. You never hear the word treatment. Well, what if what if someone came out and they said, um, "Okay, guys, don't panic about COVID nineteen. It's a risk stratified illness. Um, we're going to take measures to protect our seniors. We've identified um, risk factors: obesity, high blood sugar, diabetes." But we we can treat this. We can handle this. We're, we're you know we're gonna we're working on it. We're consulting with doctors who are coming up with solutions. A kind of civic core of of of, of response. Um, then the public thinks, well, okay, we can get through this. The, you know, the skies. It's not the end of the world. But but what what I think we see happening is this perception and. and and, and, you know, where, where you really might look at a useful precedent was in the Wall Street crash of October of 2008. There were this there was tarp there. There, there were all of these emergency the I, I protocols, maybe. Right. Well, Congress just starts passing all of these overnight emergency responses to the financial crisis and thereby justifying hundreds of billions of dollars that are sent to, 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 to the banking industry. And, and I think the kind of pernicious lesson that was learned was, okay, it's an emergency, but instead of a financial emergency, you know, the world financial system is about to go down the tubes, it's a public health emergency. 
So all of those hundreds of billions of dollars that went to the to the big Wall Street banks, they're gonna. It's all gonna come to us mm. in the biopharmaceutical complex. Wow, you broke that down. Wow. Anything else, Rob? I don't want you to miss your flight. Yeah, I don't want to miss their flight. That was that was amazing. That was good. Well, thank you so much for having us. You got anything, Rob? Thank you. The only the only thing I was gonna go with them, and it's. I feel like the idiot here. It's totally off of thing where you're talking about. You talked a bit you, a lot of your books crime, right? What did you think of the whole Idaho murder thing? Now they finally got that guy. We could go. We could be here for three more hours, I'm sure. Well, what so was his why do it? What was his so, thing? So that's that's going into criminal psychology of yeah. psychopathy and that that's uh, we could I, uh, that's I'll, a, I'll come back because i actually there you go you gotta wait i got these you. two back we'll talk about the idaho. Back. there we go gotcha i got you Get again back again uh, while you're looking at your phone he idaho murder we're john you just agreed next time idaho <laughs> murder well but what i want to say let me let me conclude Absolutely, with this sir. what we're looking at is organized crime yeah um it's it's not a, a disordered individual, homicidal individual. It it is an organized uh, crime. The 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 elements being fraud, a fraudulent misrepresentation to the world of what's going on here, um, misuse, misappropriation of government funds, and reckless endangerment, negligent homicide in terms of suppressing good products. That are FDA approved, hydroxychloroquine, been around for 60 years, and then and then forcing these emergency products that have not been properly tested. So those are the elements of crime. It's an organized crime. We're gonna have to leave it there. Yeah. Oh, you gotta go. And uh here's the hardcover book, and we'll have all that in there. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, you guys. Thank you guys Thank so much. You.